Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both Babylon and Knives Out. Joining me today, he would never compare himself to Harriet Tubman in spirit. It's Fred Cobb. Fred, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. I just uh, stepped out of the shower, actually, trying to scrub all the uh, elephant poop off of me that I still have sticking all over me from the movie yesterday. But uh, other than that, no complaints. How about you? Yeah. How's it going, Josh? Good. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna lead off with an elephant poop joke, and then I realized I don't know if it'd be as, as funny since I just talked to you about elephant poop right before we started. But I'm I'm ha- I'm, ha- I'm happy you, you I'm happy you went there anyway. Um, I, and I I also almost called you like the the uh, the uh, Margot Robbie uh, box office bomb correspondent, but you know the, we we can we can talk about that part of it in a little bit. Um, but uh, we're, we're we're gonna we're gonna start with uh, we're gonna start with Babylon, which is the newest movie from Damien Chazelle, who you might know as the director of films such as uh, Whiplash, La La Land, and First man of the, the latter of which fred previously joined us on a podcast for uh but babylon is a you know a much different bigger swing of sorts for mr chazelle uh it's set in the los angeles during the 20s right at the right at the kind of the moment at which you know the silent film era is turning into um you know the talkie film era and uh he everybody follows like a, a couple of different movie stars and at different points in their career one uh played by brad pitt his name's jack conrad uh, my, my my understanding fred is that he's 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 based on a, a silent film star himself uh john gilbert uh and also uh nelly Roy, who is played by margot robbie who is just showing up to town ready to be a star at the beginning of the movie kind of based on clara bow and i mean i i i, sh- I should say loosely based on because this movie takes like all kinds of liberties. It's really not trying to be a true story. It just kind of has these, he has these inspirations basically from these couple of people. And I think Gene Smart plays a journalist character too, that, you know, I think is a kind of an amalgamation of other journalists of the time. Uh, Diego Calva plays uh, Manny Torres, who is like a kind of a film assistant that kind of works his way up in the industry uh, over the course of the film. And, you know, there's not really much of a plot, Fred. I don't really feel the need to really give a whole plot description. He follows these characters, follows what the times are like, tries to capture, you know, exactly what what what, what it kind of was when Hollywood had was in this this one of its heydays. Uh, when it when it had studios that were just you know, kind of going all out and making big pictures, but also trying to, you know, kind of handle this transition. And it obviously he has two different point of view characters here where they're, or I don't want to say point of view characters because I say Manny's kind of the point of view character, but, you know, uh, in but with 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 respect to uh, Nelly, who actually does does not even really interact all that much with Jack, but they're, they're obviously they, they do interact here and there and they're at very different points in their career. And we're following those arcs along with along with that of Manny and just kind of seeing a whole lot of debaucherous stuff going on. This is a three hour movie and it is just balls to the wall. Fred, you saw it last night. I haven't seen it in about 10 days. So or or honestly, I guess uh, 12 days. So I, I you know, and I'm, I'm kind of curious because. My, my, my whole reaction when I left this, because I mean, I, I'd seen a lot of before, about it going into the movie and uh, I'd seen critics talk about it and everyone was uh, very, fairly divisive and everyone's just like, wow, that but the, kind of the one like overarching response that people were saying was that like, wow, he really, there's just a lot here. And that was kind of my reaction to is like, you know, wow, that is like a lot of movie. So I'm wondering, did you have some other prevailing thought as you left this movie other than, wow, that was a lot? Because honestly, I kind of had that common reaction. And I'm wondering, like, did you were you like, oh, wow, it's really interesting. Damien Chazelle is really what, what he's trying to say here about what the film industry has become or what it was. Or I really thought I was thinking a lot about that performance because my reaction was more just like, damn, he really just like, like kind of unloaded the clip here. And like, as, as some people have said, like kind of just 
threw everything he could at there because who, who knows, maybe he'll never get a chance to make another movie like this. And that was my overarching reaction. Nothing even really that specific about what was on there, but none of which was like offensively bad to me, which I think is what some people have kind of thought. And I'm curious, what, what, what was your like an instant reaction to leaving this thing? So it's a little bit of both of what you described. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very impressive that they gave Damien Chazelle $80 million to make. It had uh, to have been more than that. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah, I mean, that's what's officially on the books. Yeah. But yeah, I assume it ended up being a whole lot more by the end, uh, which is impressive a, because you don't really see a lot of these big budget prestige pictures anymore uh, because a lot of them haven't done super well at the box office recently. Um, and also because uh, his most recent movie before this one, First Man, didn't do especially well at the box office either, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was unfortunate because I thought it was a really good reconstruction of the Apollo moon landing. But um, yeah, it's odd that producers thought we should take another shot with them and give him a lot of money uh, after the most recent one didn't work out super well. I think we might just have to accept that La La Land was... Uh, him catching lightning in a bottle to an extent because he had Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone at the height of their popularity, doing dancing with catchy songs. And I think that's really what led to the success of that one as opposed to Damien Giselle necessarily being a masterful director. Uh, That being said, I do think underneath all of the flashiness here and the extravagance and the craziness, um, I think there's a discussion worth having about movies that are about excess and excessive movies. And I think it's a very fine line. And one of the movies that I thought of immediately that I think is on the wrong side of it, uh, in part because Margot Robbie is actually also in it, is The Wolf of Wall Street, which is a movie that I haven't revisited since it came out 10 years ago, because as much as I love Martin Scorsese, uh, that movie just became too obnoxious for my taste. Wow, I like The Wolf of Wall Street. I didn't know know you were down on it. Like I said, I haven't revisited it in a decade. Maybe if I see it again now, my my opinion will have changed a little bit, but I distinctly remember walking out of that thinking, yeah, that was a lot, and a lot of it seemed kind of pointless to me. In this case, I think there really is a very tragic story underneath uh, the flashy exterior of Babylon about uh, an industry that tends to cannibalize itself when massive changes are happening. Uh, whether that's in the late 1920s, 1930s, when sound first came around, uh, whether that was in the the 1950s, when uh, McCarthyism was a big thing and actors were blacklisted and couldn't work anymore because they were alleged communists in bed with Russia. And I think that this is kind of a story that's played itself out over and over again. And here it really just shows that people who had made it to the very top of the mountain, really, people who were uh, just these big stars that got to appear in movies after movies. A lot of them just weren't able to adapt when sound came around, and it ended up uh, causing this just massive destructive wave almost of people's careers falling apart uh, simply because there was such a fundamental change that robbed them of the ability to participate uh, in their, what their passion was. Well, so yeah, I've and I guess there there, there are other movies about the, uh, in to different extents and in different perspectives on that particular phenomena in that point in time. I I actually rewatched Singing in the Rain last night because I people it, oh. it pops up it pops up a couple times in this movie and people have kind of compared it to this movie in some ways and I had not watched it in like four or five years and I'm very glad I did because I'd heard some people 
um, comparing that scene, uh, the, the, the scene where Nelly like has trouble with the voice guy uh, to the, there's one in singing the rain. That's like not completely dissimilar, but some people were saying like, Oh no, they just ripped it off of that. And that's, I, I wholeheartedly actually disagree with that because it's, yes. it's much more played for last in singing the rain. And that, that actress in singing the rain is just kind of portrayed as a dingbat that doesn't, can't even remember where a microphone is. And that's the problem here. It's just a different part of like the transition to uh, talking pictures in so much as like, you know, he, here, it's not even that like the actress is dumb or, or, or not good at acting. We're led to believe Nelly actually is, like a good actress in, in in her own way but like they, they just can't even get the sound level right like they, they, people can't get on the same page we're not even we're no that, that that scene is not necessarily shot as at her being like her just not really knowing what she was doing at least i didn't take it that way more just like this is really challenging and in in, in in a new way and i mean someone that already might have some demons like maybe maybe not gonna like you know make the easiest transition but not because she's not intelligent you know no it was a completely new way of shooting movies and i actually think what's interesting uh, about Singing in the Rain is that Lena Lamont character that you just described. Mm -hmm. She is very much meant to be comic relief in Singing in the Rain. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what Babylon does very well is it kind of made me realize that that's a bit of an unfair depiction of her because presumably she had a career in movies uh, before sound came around and she must have been pretty successful. Yeah, because she, she, she's, she's depicted as having a lot of power within the system at that point, you know. Yes, and just because she has this unfortunate accent and just the voice that doesn't really match what people wanted to see in a star at a time, uh, that just completely destroyed her career. And yeah, Singing in the Rain is obviously depicting that in a funnier way. It is a comedy. Uh, but I give Damien Chazelle credit for kind of making me realize that it's really a bit of a tragic story what that character is going through in Singing in the Rain because... Obviously, uh, she was no longer able to continue in that business uh, just because technology had changed on her. Yeah, and well, so right, I I I, I kind of like thinking about Babylon as more of like a story about like maybe like just those people. Though I guess in isolation, people those, these specific people maybe having like an issue or something like that. Because I've 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 seen a few different critics now trying to tie it kind of large, more largely to his uh, filmography, which maybe there's something to it where it's like saying he likes making movies about like, w what is the cost of success? And like, what do you have to do to yourself to like have that success? It's very apparent in Whiplash where like, I mean, I think it's an incredible final scene, uh, but it's like, hey, like, you know, it, this guy's reached some kind of euphoria, but like at what cost he's like prostrating himself again, kind of in some way to this evil teacher. Um, like first man, you know, he's like, you know, Armstrong's like, I mean, obviously sacrificing a lot with respect to his family, and while Land, you see these characters at the end that have like you know they've they've kind of achieved some kind of what they wanted to professionally but they hey they're maybe they're not as happy in their personal life as they could have been if they'd been with each other like there there is somewhat of a common theme here and i'm like it's like and so here people are saying with respect to babylon well like these people here they have uh like the, the, the especially these two actors that it focuses on like well look what, 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 what it costs to get to the top of this industry and i didn't necessarily i don't, I don't know if that tracks a hundred percent because like yeah, maybe if I just think about it as a movie about these specific characters without having to say anything about like what the industry does to everyone, like that's fine. I'm like, but I'm sure there's other people that like, you know, maybe didn't have like quite the demons about it as these particular ones. So I don't necessarily like want to, I, I, I'm choosing maybe not to necessarily think about it as like a larger statement about what it does to these people. Uh, but like, I think even if, I, or maybe I'm just saying like, I don't know if it works 100% as just like, 
a thesis statement about like what the industry does to actors. Cause like not every actor is in, in Hollywood's at that orgy, you know, not every single one, like, you know, uh, slowly got phased out and then decides to, you know, um, and then um, I, I actually, I don't, I, I don't even want to go there necessarily with, the, with what happens with those people at the end, but not all of them have the, the endings that these actors do. So I, I guess my, 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 my overall thought was like, look, I, I like these two actors. I'm very entertained by their performances. They're very different. But like I was never bored watching them in this movie. And it's like, hey, the, the, these are things that definitely happen to actors in these times. I don't need to necessarily think of it as a larger statement about about the times. But like, I, hey, this definitely obviously could happen to people because like, hey, it's probably rough to see like your skill set become obsolete or just your relevance wane. Because I don't think we're necessarily led to believe that like that Jack had the same problems that like that, that Jack just like was incapable of voice acting. But like Brad Pitt's almost 60 years old. So if we. The kind of who knows maybe I, I don't know how old that actor is supposed to be i know the one that he's based on uh uh died at an age much younger than brad pitt um but like you know at the same time like you know hey i i i think i think it totally makes sense that some people would like struggle with that kind of thing and i think hey if he wants to like say something kind of larger about the uh, larger about the era but then like focus on these two people that's fine I, it's just i kind of took it more as like a interesting story with respect to these two as opposed to like, yeah, here is just like, here's what it costs to be successful. It's like, eh, not, not in every case. That was kind of my big take on it. Yeah, and the reality was that some people were able to make that transition. Mm -hmm. It honestly, as shitty as it sounds, in a lot of cases, it boiled down to luck. Um, there's that scene in Singing in the Rain uh, with Gene Kelly at the speech therapist, one of my favorite dancing numbers in all mm -hmm. of uh, musical history, uh, where he is able to pick it up pretty quickly. Um, where he does the enunciation right, he's able to uh, have the voice that you're expecting to come out, out of the mouth of a big star. And so he's able to still have a career in movies even after the big transition takes, takes place. And Jack Conrad, it's really a tragic story because you, there's that scene where he goes into a showing of one of his movies and people are just laughing at the most inopportune times because uh, his performance just... Uh, isn't something they can take seriously. Uh, and it's really depressing for him to think about having reached that point where he gets the reassurance at one point from that gossip columnist that years from now, he'll still be remembered for the performances he gave. And I thought that was actually a pretty strong and also kind of sad statement because a lot of movies from that time are lost forever because uh, they weren't preserved properly, warehouses burned down, some of the movies from back then that are still talked about to this day are probably irrevocably gone. But, and I have this experience sometimes when I do watch movies from very long ago, uh, it is kind of impressive to think about these actors having been gone for a very long time, for decades in some cases. And we're still here today watching those movies in some cases. Um, and there is a certain reassurance to that in the grand scheme of things, even if that doesn't help a guy in the moment when he realizes that he is no longer a part of this industry and that his success has just kind of run out. Yeah, what did I watch recently? Um, it was from a long time ago. Uh, maybe it was on, 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 a, on a plane, actually. I watched Grand Hotel for the first time. Oh, uh, I like Grand like... Hotel. There was actually a post of Grand Hotel in Babylon at one point. Oh, I, I, I think I missed that, but like, it was, uh, uh, I, I didn't love it as much as I wanted to, but I, but like, but like I, but it came out in 1932. So I was like, wow, like I'm watching this on a plane right now and it came out 90 years ago. 
Um, so it was, just, it was, it was a very, it was a very, it was a very kind of surreal thought to have in that moment where it's like, and I, and I, and I didn't think it was bad either. So it just, I, I didn't love it as much as I was hoping to for a best picture winner. So I was like, oh, wow, it's really interesting that like th- this is getting even kind of dusted off the shelf and put on a plane. Like for the longest time, like, I don't know why I guess I thought like, I, I maybe that, that might've been like, well, I guess I had, I have seen the jazz singer before, but like, I, I guess I was just like, you know, kind of just like thrown off. I was like, oh, wow. Like I, uh, interesting that like there's this many other, uh, that there's like that, like they're refurbishing other stuff this old for like circulation now. And that's my fault too. Like I know that I know Criterion has older stuff on there and a couple of the other like services like that. It's just like, it was like, I just found it interesting. They were like even getting stuff like that out to put on a plane. So uh, yeah, it's, and I, and I agree with you on Babylon and that like, I, I, I did really like, I, I thought I thought that scene with Brad Pitt and Gene Smart was like one of the more memorable ones in the, in, in the whole movie and both for the writing, but also like their performances. And it's just Brad Pitt is like in the midst of a lot of the Bacchanalia throughout the movie. So then to see him like then, uh, even if he's, he's not going all out like Margot Robbie is, but like he's he's more in, in, in other different settings at that point. And then to see him like in such a quieter toned down scene and to show that side of him as an actor, which, you know, I don't know if you've ever when the last time we never necessarily seen him get, get serious in that way was like, yeah, he won an Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But like that's a that's a, that's a, that, that, that movie that that's, that's a whole that character is kind of vibing in a different way than this one is, I would say. Yeah, I was going to say curious case of Benjamin Button, maybe. What's the last time? I mean, he's done dramas. I just can't. I just can't. He's done dramas like even more recently than I just can't remember the last time I saw him like you know just get serious for like in in that contemplative in a scene. You know, I I just right because he doesn't need to because he doesn't need to do a lot of those roles anymore. I mean, think about the other two performances he gave in 2022: The Lost City and Bullet Train. So he's just kind of reached a point now where he doesn't really need to do a lot of that. Uh, I, t- I, well, I, I take that back. I, I, I guess I take that back a little bit. Ad, Ad Astro is pretty uh, fairly dramatic. Oh, that's right. Yes, Ad Astro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so, wasn't that long ago. Um, right. Yeah, that was that, that, that was uh, that was twenty nineteen. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that was the the last time we actually saw him in a movie before the pandemic. So, um, but yeah, like it, it, the fact that like it, 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 there there are few and far between where he really necessarily has to like go to places like that. I mean. Um, so, uh, I think, I, I think the, I think the point still stands, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I actually really appreciate that he does it too here because it's mm-hmm. a bit self-reflective too. I mean, he's a guy mm-hmm. who's like turning 60 pretty soon. And I mean, he is still making movies obviously and making successful movies, uh, a lot of times he, he just won his Oscar recently, but mm-hmm. obviously once you reach an age like that, there are certain roles that are just no longer going to be available to you. And a lot of actors, uh, are forced to take roles in movies that may not necessarily appeal to them on an artistic level, um, such as what Jack Conrad has to do here at one point, where Irving Thalberg gives him a call and asks him to appear in a movie that he knows it's, it's a piece of shit, but that is really the only kind of role that is still being offered to him at this point. Uh, and there's a tragedy to that that I find kind of... Um, admirable that brad pitt would tackle given that he's in a stage uh in his life now where he may potentially face uh, a similar decline in good roles yeah who, who knows it's interesting I, I i don't know exactly what the future holds for brad pitt like i mean you know because especially because he's not like tom cruise and that they're about the same yeah. age but like but like but like tom cruise has like chosen this lane where it's like you know i, I have i have a well-oiled machine here in the mission impossible movies and like he'll he'll keep making them until he dies doing one of them and i i'm only half joking when i say that and they'll keep making yeah, them. Right. They'll, they'll, they'll keep getting funded as they get as they get the money for it whereas brad pitt hasn't attached himself to anything like that but he also has a production company that's like very successful but like the the, the movies that like he stars in that he himself acts in 
and tend to be like bigger budget things. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think someone like him has enough money and enough like cachet that can probably, he could probably get a, like a, a lower budget movie funded when it, whenever he wants, if he wants to like take the time to act in it and just not have like a big payday. But like, I, I there is, uh, but like you said, there is something very interesting in him just like also playing like a fading movie star when he himself is, you know, 59 years old. God, it's it's he he still he still looks incredibly great for fifty nine years old though. Um, oh yeah, no question about that. Uh, that, that that's 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 indisputable. Well, I guess God, like you said, I I, I there's there, there I you you wanted to put a time limit on this, and I don't know if I have much to say. And I feel like now we've just like talked about like just one corner of like a massive ass. I was gonna say we've only really just gotten started here. Yeah, I guess speaking of getting started, like I mean, I don't know if there's a ton to say unless there's any specific visual flourishes you want to do. But like, let me just ask you then about like the because we can we can almost like knock out the first hour of the movie and in like in like one exchange because like I mean honestly the first like on almost hour of this movie is like set around this like this large uh uh this rollicking bacchanalia of a party at uh an executive's house I think it is the Jeff Garland's ha- uh, character's house even though Jeff Garland doesn't really say much in the movie um but it's just understood there's this big party going on at his place and it's like literally an orgy i think i heard in like i i i watched a um interview i i, I just referenced this on like two podcasts ago too or though uh but uh, uh i watched the actors on actors with margot robbie and um and carrie mulligan and apparently like a lot of the extras that are just there like for, basically fornicating on screen or like just friends of damien chazelle's and his wife his wife is a producer and also stars in the movie as like the director of the movie that nelly is starring in uh and then uh when she first gets discovered but also like the next one she has a much more difficult time making but like his wife is also a producer on the movie along with him and like apparently some of them are just like friends of theirs that showed up and like yeah we'll go crazy wearing masks so it's like all right cool but like so yeah just all this crazy stuff all these drugs all the sex, all these animals, all these fluids. Fred, did you like, did, did you have any kind of like visceral negative reaction to this? Or were you like, all right, well, he just wanted to kind of show he could pull off a big set piece like that. I'm impressed that he did it. What, what, what did you think when you saw that part of the movie specifically? So first of all, I think Justin Hurwitz needs to win the Oscar for best score this year. That yeah, think- he does rip He does rip himself off on at times though. Cause you hear the La La Land score a couple times in this movie. True, but I think the first, uh, 30, 40 minutes, however much oh, yeah. it ends up being at the orgy, is mainly driven just by the forceful score that he provides. And it's just super exciting stuff. He basically utilizes instruments that were big back then, like jazz band instruments, drums, and just modernize them in a way where they feel anachronistic, sure, but it also kind of gives you an idea of what like, that excitement would have been like back then for these mm-hmm. people. You obviously have to make some changes because what would have been considered wild and excessive in the 1920s would probably seem pretty tame to us nowadays. But at the same time, it's just really such a powerful, like opening uh, extravaganza for the movie with all the dancing that is happening. There's just so much going on in any frame that it's almost hard to keep track of everything. But I just think it's impressive that someone is able to even direct a scene like that and just give us an idea of all of the chaos uh, that all of these players that are going to play a big role in the movie find themselves in at the start, because they're all there. And that is really, I think, the only time they're ever in the same room together. Mm. And that is, I mean, I don't want to like say anything sacrilegious right now, but it's kind of the same idea of the wedding and the Godfather, where you have all of the same characters really in one location. There's a big party going on. And that allows them to have the kinds of interactions that are really going to define the next three hours going forward. 
And I think this is a very good, very visceral and visual way to make that happen. Yeah, you also you know that everyone's there. So I, sh- I should also mention uh, Giovanna Depo plays Sidney Palmer, a, a jazz trumpet player who also kind of gets a little more involved in the movies as it goes on. Then Lee Jun Lee plays uh, Lady Fei Zhu, who's a Chinese American cabaret singer who is kind of she's there in that opening scene and she's around in the movie a lot and plays a plays a bigger role towards the end in some ways. But I think both of them are given less to do. And I mean, if there's a, a fair critique of the movie, it's like maybe you could find more for them to do if it's like going to be over three hours yes. long. Yes. Um, but, but, you know, so, but when Fred's saying everyone's there, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm looping, lumping them in there. Cause yes, that is kind of a part where he just like, kind of like th- throws everyone in there, except for, except for, uh, Tobe McGuire who shows up later in a much, in a, in a much different capacity. Yeah. It also uh, has a very brief appearance by Olivia Wilde, interestingly enough, in <laughs> yes. what is the best performance of 2022, I would argue, uh, take that for what you will. Um, was she, any, was, she, was she in anything besides her supporting role in Don't Worry, Darling? Was she in anything else last year? Oh, I mean, that's the one I was mainly thinking okay. of, to be honest. But I think her acting is the least of the problems of Don't Worry, Darling. But, you know. Yeah, um. I, 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 I thought that was a, yeah, I just thought that was a very problematic character, uh, especially once you find out that she was kind of uh, a little in on it. Part yeah. of the whole, that yeah, she was yeah, kind yeah. of in on it the whole time. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought that introduction was super funny for Brad Pitt because. Mm-hmm. He pulls off like 30 seconds of flawless Italian and considering and that the iconic Inglorious Bastard scene where it's like, I was ratty. about to say exactly <laughs> where he played, where he plays an Italian stuntman. And that's also at a big movie premiere. Uh, I, I thought that was, I don't know if that was coincidental, but uh, if it was, it really made for a nice little, uh, inside joke i felt like yeah I, I did i did think about that i was watching and i, and I, and I forgot so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that but yeah i yeah i mean look i i don't really have a lot of like novel thoughts to add to that scene i'll just say that like look i i didn't i, I didn't have like a i didn't have a gross gross out reaction to it i was like okay this is a lot i think i'd heard somewhere that that was going to be the case and i'd kind of i so i guess i'd mentally prepared myself for everything we we're getting thrown into and i was able to just like kind of just appreciate the technical achievement of it all and how like just just if you just i mean i guess you know just sometimes thinking about how they did something in a movie is almost as fun as watching the movie itself and it was like man right. like imagine like it's not even just the amount of people they have but like the amount of stuff going on like i mean who knows how many takes that took who knows how who knows how long they were shooting that for who knows how much cleanup you had to do after every single take like it just seems like to, to have gotten that to where they needed to get it to it, it had to have just been like the most like meticulous difficult thing ever and like so i'm i'm kind of it's, it's just kind of impressed impressed that 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 scene exists and like like just looks as good as it does i think it's just a really cool accomplishment if nothing else so and i think it's also kind of meta in a sense because this is actually a great transition to the next part of the movie mm-hmm. where chazelle really takes his time to show us painstakingly how much effort it took and still takes, I guess, to this day to just get one single perfect shot. Because mm-hmm. that is really what happens uh, at the Jack Conrad set when Manny gets involved. Ultimately, they're just trying to get this one perfect scene uh, where Brad Pitt's character and his love interest interact and they kiss as the sun sets. And it really takes the entire day to make that happen because uh, cameras keep getting destroyed. Uh, the safety measures are awful. So people actually end up dying on set. And I think that's really a big part of what Giselle does here, too. I mean, it's self-aggrandizing to an extent. Of course, these movies about Hollywood always are because you're telling everybody, look how hard we're working. This isn't just fun and glamour for us. Like we're actually like really trying very hard to get everything right here. And that takes a lot of effort. But I did think those scenes also added a ton of energy during the first hour or two just to see how much 
time and effort it took to get these shots exactly right back in those days when you didn't have the technological capabilities yet that you have today. Yeah, it's funny because like, well, in some ways, like you wouldn't necessarily have the same troubles because like, I bet like any any big production these days are probably like, you know, have an extra camera on, on there, uh, have, have, have extra cameras lying around. But at the same time, like, you know, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of directors are like very particular with how they shoot and they, um, and a lot of them and, and, or cinematographers too. And it's like a lot of the people like want to use natural light at sometimes when they have it. And it's like, that's like a challenge. that's never going to go away. Like you got it. You, you only have so many times you can get a shot looking a certain way at a certain point in the day. And so it's, it, I think that, that, that aspect of it is still kind of timeless. And at, while at the same time, like who knows how many more movies are ever going to be made with that amount of extras. Cause you know, you can CGI extras a lot these days. You know, so, uh, but, but apparently they actually did use that many extras in Babylon and they really did it the, they, they did it the uh, analog way. And uh, again, it's very impressive and it, it's, I guess kind of, kind of both that and both that and the Nelly scene are, um, are somewhat like, uh, we're both somewhat like movies happening within the movies themselves. Cause apparently like Margot Robbie herself was like, she, she was generating those tears. So it's like, they, they were like having to like keep, they kept having to do it. And she, she said that Damien Chazelle felt bad that he had to like ask her to do it a different way. And they kept asking Nelly to do it a different way. So it was, it, it was just kind of like, I, I get, it was, it was all very, very meta and, uh, but still like incre incre incredibly entertaining and, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I like thinking about how Damien Giselle made this movie, but then go back and just think about like with all the things they didn't have then that we have now, how much that might have taken. It's like, it's cool to get like a little bit of a window into that. Yeah, especially because they made a bunch of just super lavish costume epics in those days mm -hmm. and just the battle scenes they had to shoot and how they had to get all these extras out into the desert uh, and capture all of that on camera. And again, I don't think that there was necessarily a lot of hyperbole in the dangers that were associated with being on a movie set at uh, that time. I'm sure people I'm sure died all did. the time. Yeah. 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 And I guess, I mean, before, before I even go back to the, the scene where they're shooting the first talking film, I'm curious, uh, did you did you have any uh, big takeaways as to like Margot Robbie's performance? Because kind of like skipped over these two scenes where she did play pivotal roles in because, uh, I mean, she just kind of comes in like a bat out of hell into the first party scene. And uh, then we then we see her become a star in the very next scene. Uh but I mean, I, I can understand why a lot of people would be like, oh, wow, what she's doing is incredibly over the top. She's doing another big time New York accent like she did in Wolf of, Wolf of Wall Street. And this character is just all out crazy. But like, I kind of respect how she went for it still. I do, too. And I do think that there is a real danger for her of getting typecast with mm -hmm. these sort of Harley Quinn uh, batshit crazy types of performances. Uh, but I do think throughout the movie that layer of vulnerability that you see, because the thing is, a lot of the actors, actresses, and movie big shots in Babylon, they put on this super manicured facade to the public where they're all just like well-spoken and dress elegantly. And then at night they go to these orgies essentially and act completely depraved. And with the Margot Robbie character, it's really what you see is what you get. Like she was never really able or willing to present that different side that manufactured side to the public because that is just not how she grew up. Uh, that is just not something that she's willing to do. And I do think that just her performance is a really interesting contrast to the hypocrisy of the rest of the movie industry. While she is really putting on this display of authenticity uh, all the time that others aren't willing to do. And it's just really tragic to see what it ultimately ends up doing to her because obviously she is a very nat that Nelly 
Leroy character is a very naturally skilled actress who is able to just cry on cue on set, something that a lot of actresses back then just couldn't do after a long training even. Uh, but just because she wasn't willing to play by those rules, that is why she ultimately got the shaft. And I do think that there's a lot of uh, just genuine poignancy uh, to what ends up happening to her. And Margot Robbie is a really good actress to portray that because apparently initially Emma Stone was cast in this role. And mm. I'm not necessarily sure that she would have been as adept at portraying the both craziness and pain of that character. Uh as Emma Stone would have. Yeah, I thought about that a little bit. I feel like she's Emma Stone probably could have done it. It just would have felt a little different, and I, I we'll never exactly, yeah. we'll never, we'll never exactly know yep. uh, what we'll the, what know. that would have been. But yeah, th- you know, the whole her playing the game thing. I, I thought about that a bit as I was watching Singing in the Ring because I, I guess I'd heard about it before. How like you know studios would you know try and manufacture relationships between people, and they were very very uh, conscious about the image of their different actors and stuff like that. And I just guess I hadn't thought about that in a while until I until until I watched this, and it's like very clear, especially in like. Um, the when they're trying to rehabilitate her image later in this movie, and she has a, a not so a not so uh, successful sequence at a at a, at a fancy party, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just kind of clear, like, look, like this person can't help but be yourself, and for better and worse, and um, you know, maybe it's a little uh, it's, it's a little harder. And then and then she also just becomes a little more self conscious at that party when she hear, overhears people talking about uh, overhears people talking about her, and um, and her just not necessarily being like a proper talking actress, and. Again, like I, I feel like we never really see that either. Like again, they, they shoot the film with her. Uh, they, they shoot the scene with her, like having trouble with the the sound guy is like kind of being a, a group, a communal problem. I, I I didn't read it as her just like being not knowing how to deliver a line necessarily, but we we, we kind of hear about it later on that like she's just not she's just not really like doing doing the job well. But for all we know, that could just be more a result of her just like not being in the best physical shape because of what she's doing to her body all the time. Uh, and so one way, for one reason or another, she's not making the transition as well as she could. And it, it, and it just, it, it, things don't go great for her. Right. And for someone who is clearly as independent as she is, Mm -hmm. uh, it must've been very hard to be under such an oppressive system, which the studios ran back in those days. If you were an actor or an actress in Hollywood, you were usually under contract with one major studio. And they could essentially dictate your entire filmography. They decided what movies you would appear in. Uh, They would decide uh, which actors you could appear in a movie with. And that's also why you get that really weird scene at one point where they're in front of Noah's Ark and they do the Singing in the Rain performance. And every single MGM actor is basically in that scene because MGM was able to dictate that, that they had to be in it because it was going to be this big show-stopping project for them. Uh, and an interesting piece of trivia, which I didn't know before Babylon, uh, the song Singing in the Rain didn't actually originate in the 1950s movie Singing in the Rain. It had been around a lot longer and actually stems from a, a 1920s musical called uh, The Hollywood Review of 1929, which I had no idea was the case. But then I actually looked for that exact clip that they show in Babylon on YouTube. And it looks actually exactly the same with Noah's Ark in the background, rain falling down. Uh, in mm. front of it and a bunch of uh, performers just standing there uh, performing the song. So that was a nice little tribute to a movie that came out around that time as well. Interesting. And I think I think another point worth making about the um, about her kind of being controlled by the studios a little bit, because since we haven't talked about him a lot, is that Manny kind of works his way up uh, to being kind of the head of the studio, who, uh, who we should say that this, this the studio that like a lot of it is a, a, a lot of it is kind of like focused around 
is um is called uh, kinoscope I'm, I'm i'm wondering like uh because we haven't really talked about diego calvo a lot and it, i think he, he's like he's obviously kind of like in some ways the protagonist but also kind of a straight man and um obviously not the stars of those other two but in a way isn't given like as much to do but like you know you see him kind of like still struggling coming to grips with like what he's having to do there and i i think nothing's more d- difficult than when he um uh than when he has to ask ask sydney to perform in blackface but like at the same time he has this also has this like this connection and is kind of like uh not so secretly in love with nelly and is like having to like try and save her while also save his career at the same time um did you did, did what, what did you what did you think about uh, what Damien Giselle was trying to show by like having him like kind of ascend to that level of power, but then have to make the compromises he has to make along the way? Yeah, that is something that I think is something that Giselle does deserve credit for. He essentially covers a pretty broad spectrum of minority players in Hollywood, and it's not just Manny; it's also uh, like you said already, uh, Sidney Palmer, who at one point is asked to perform in blackface because his skin isn't dark enough, apparently, to get the movie released all over the country. Um, and that also ties into the uh, Lady Faye Zhu character, um, who is very clearly meant to be a stand-in for uh, silent actress Anna Mae Wong, who also had a big career in silent movies and then got essentially shoved out of Hollywood uh, because once talking pictures came around to her accent, wasn't acceptable and ultimately the roles she would have normally gotten were replaced by white actresses in yellow face. Um, and Manny, I think is an interesting case study because he has to sacrifice a lot of his heritage and identity to really make it big in Hollywood. There's that one scene where he talks to Nelly where he admits that he hasn't seen his parents in a long time, even though they live right in LA because he can't really afford to associate with them because Otherwise, he'll just be seen as that immigrant who can't be trusted to work his way up uh, to the top of a Hollywood studio. And it really kind of does hit that point eventually where you see him become willing to do these awful things uh, in the name of acquiring that influence. Uh, And it's tragic. It's tragic because you see him become more polished, uh, like the way he combs his hair, the way he dresses that he lives in a nice home or a nicer home now. Uh, that all comes with sacrifice that he was forced to make that a lot of his uh, white peers in the studio system didn't have to make for obvious reasons. And they were still able to do all of their debauchery uh, behind closed doors. And if you were in any way different, like if you were part of a minority group, whether that be uh, Latin American, uh, African-American, or even a lesbian, that was another uh, subplot that we saw here where uh, Lady Feiju was essentially sorted out because uh, her relationship with Nelly was considered a public embarrassment, which again, there is just a ton of hypocrisy to that because all of these other people were doing so much other stuff uh, when people weren't watching that that was the one thing that they decided to point out and push somebody out the door for. Yeah, so and also, I think yeah. Manny is a so I think Manny is a really good stand-in for a lot of these issues coming together in one person. Yeah, and also a lot of the white counterparts of his he referenced they they might just come up from a place of privilege and it might not even really register to them when they have to ask someone to do something like what he asked Sydney to do, whereas it just like it just like weighs more on him, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I guess the last one of the last things I do want to ask you about before we like kind of tie up any other odds and ends is like you know I think there's like so much there with respect to the stuff we just talked about with everything to that point in the movie 
And what would you say to someone that would, would say, hey, did we really need that whole thing with like Toby, Toby Maguire and that criminal underworld? Like in theory, you could like, ex- could you excise that part of the movie and have like a two hour and 25 minute movie? And are, 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 we, are, we, are we any worse off? Uh, and I, I, don't, I haven't necessarily heard anyone make that point specifically. I think some people have been like, yeah, just kind of, it goes off a cliff in the, in the final act or whatever, but like no one, no one necessarily like framing it that way. But I'm wondering, like, I, I think, I think all that stuff is still, all that stuff in and of itself is still, a, is, is also a feat of filmmaking and it's uh, very imaginative to just create this whole other seedy side of Los Angeles that like, you know, I mean, who, who knows if any version of that ever, ever existed, or could this be all something that came out of Damien Giselle's head? I don't know. Um, did, were, were you entertained enough by it and kind of impressed by it enough that you're like, all right, I'll go on this ride with him? Or were, did, did the movie lose you at all at that point? Uh, I wouldn't say it lost me, but I do think it's fair to wonder whether that part of the movie was necessary because he had already shown all of the depravity and strange tastes of people back in those days that I didn't think you necessarily needed that uh, underground nightclub that seems to be populated by Mm. P.T. Barnum's circus, essentially. (laughs) I don't necessarily need Babylon to be shorter. I want to be very clear here. I would have watched a Mm -hmm. four-hour or even a five-hour cut of this movie if that extra time that we had spent on Tobey Maguire's character would have instead been distributed among someone like Sidney Palmer, for example, who I think Mm -hmm. is a very interesting character but doesn't necessarily get enough screen time. Um, The same thing is true for a lot of the other minority characters who I think all have very fascinating journeys uh, from the beginning of the movie at the big orgy to where they end up during those final scenes. Uh, But I do think that there are other ways to get the characters uh, that are involved with the Tobey Maguire character. And I'm treading lightly here because we're not in spoiler territory yet. Uh, I think there are different ways to get the characters who are involved with the Tobey Maguire character to where they need to be by the end of the movie to get to some of the final developments uh, about what happens to them. Um, yeah, well, I mean, because during during one of that sequence, I guess Manny's hanging out with this character called the Count, who is a uh, like kind of a, 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 a who, at least Wikipedia describes as like a movie set drug dealer of sorts. Yeah. And a lot of people seem to enjoy that character, even if they didn't enjoy that part of the movie. And it's like, well, like, look, like, uh, you know, I think you could still get to, you. Nelly clearly has like a lot of like, yeah. Does she really need to have a gambling problem? Like, she already has a lot of other. She's already doing. She already has a lot of other vices. Uh, right. You can have this. This count guy's a drug dealer. Like, you can have a character like that involved if you want to, without necessarily like, going to this place or something like that. Yeah, and I don't know if Toby Maguire was already signed on as a producer of this movie, or I think he has an executive producer credit on it, hmm. um, or if that was just after he already got this role, but. I don't really think you need him in there. Like I said, it just went into a direction that the movie didn't really need. Uh, It's just this like whole like separate subplot essentially that moves it away from what the story is really about here, uh, about the downfall of certain people in an industry. And this just got to a point for me where some of the vices Damien Chazelle already pointed out were taken to an extreme level that were kind of pointless at that point mm-hmm. to hammer home what he had already told us. Um, yeah, but- so, yeah, I think it's a fair point to say that you don't need, really need that part of the movie. And if you have Toby McGuire in there, uh, you sure as hell don't need him to take them to this underground sex dungeon, essentially, where things just go so over the top that uh, it makes you wonder whether um, 
he had he he just went a little too overboard here. Yeah, I'll, again, I'll still say like I mean, I, I was never bored watching this movie, so it it has that going for it. But like I said, there's there's certainly an argument that like, hey, maybe this movie feels a little more consistent if you uh, devote that time to like a couple of these other characters, um, uh, who you know the, the whether it be uh, like you said the the Sydney Palmer character or the Lady Faye character, like hey, maybe maybe just take that out and have them involved, and then uh, we're gonna talk about the ending in a minute. But like you know, I I still think the ending of the movie like. It might it might even work better if you just you know uh, if if it feels a little closer in proximity to the, some of the other stuff in this movie. Uh, but yeah, I, I want to jump to spoiler territory, but I think it's very clear. Fred and I would uh, would recommend the movie, even if like you know, yeah, uh, we, we can find a th- we we can find things to critique here or there. So and you know, I'm I'm gonna get this. I'm actually gonna get this episode out pretty fast, Fred, because um uh, right as, as we currently do this, I have COVID nineteen and I don't really have anything better to do than to like finish doing this and sit on my couch and edit it while I watch the NFL. So. Uh, at the, if you're if you're watching this on the week of January 9th, uh, it might only have like another week in theaters because this movie has not made a lot of money. Uh, so uh, you oh, know right. you can you can go out and watch it now if you have three three spare hours to go do that. So yeah, and then come back and listen to the rest of our conversation. So uh, so Fred, we we we, t- we talked about our, our little journey into the like the CD underworld of LA, and then we have uh, Manny and Nelly kind of go on the run a little bit uh, and. Um, and, and, and that, that, that's even setting aside, it's, it's, uh, we, we, there's, there's obviously another scene with, um, with Jack and Faye and we can go back to that later, which, um, you know, unfortunately ends with, uh, Jack taking his own life where he's, you know, clearly kind of come to grips with, uh, where he's at in his life and is obviously not so thrilled with it, especially in light of the conversation we already talked about, uh, that he had earlier with Gene Smart's, uh, Eleanor St. John, but, uh, I guess I'll focus for another second on, uh, Manny and Nellie. It looks like they're going to run away. Um, they kind of have to, you know, they, they get involved in some other kind of like, sh- like have another couple of shady encounters, but uh, it looks like they're going to be able to make it out and they're going to escape to Mexico together because they, 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 they just, they, they, you know, they just can't be, they can't be anywhere near Toby Maguire's James McKay mob boss at that point. And, uh, but then b- before they have a chance to go, uh, Nellie wanders off and kind of leaves him. We come to see that she's, she, she's died pretty, she, she dies not soon after we see in a clip later. Um, Manny goes off and kind of lives his own life for like the next, uh, I guess it's like 20 years later. Yeah. Um, he he ended up uh, going to New York city where he established a successful radio retail business. Glad he was in the fifties and not trying to do that in the two thousands. Um, (laughs) he, uh, he, he revisits the old, uh, kinescope studios and, um, and then he happens to pop into a, uh, into a, to a theater to watch singing in the rain. And he, he sees all the, he sees all the crowd, you know, they are, um, they're moved by the, they're moved by the, they're moved by the movie. And then, uh, then we end up getting like a, just like a whole century, uh, spanning, uh, montage of cinema. And I mean, and I'm, and I'm not just talking about cinema up to that point in time. I'm talking about cinema up through the 21st century. I think uh, Avatar, most notably, a of Avatar in there. yeah, that's like the most notable thing that jumps out when you see Avatar uh, clips all of a sudden in a movie that's set in the 1920s and 30s. So it's a very audacious, ambitious way to end a movie like this. Um, and it's a big swing, if nothing else. So I think you can respect that and maybe be like, I don't know if I would have gone there if I was him. Uh, what did you think when all of a sudden you're like, you're seeing, uh, you're seeing, you know, uh, James Soley right there in the middle of, you know, uh, in the, in the middle of your movie about the 1920s and 30s in Hollywood. Kind of made me want to see the second Avatar again, which I'm sure was <laughs> right next door. But uh, no, so in all seriousness, I've read some very uncharitable interpretations of that last scene, mm-hmm. where some critics have essentially suggested that what Chazelle is saying here is that because we got 
so many great movies out of it, uh, like Singing in the Rain, like Avatar, and all the other ones that they end up showing, uh, that that's, that made it all worth it, that the people who lost their livelihoods and their lives in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, that they were essentially sacrifices worth making because you got so much great stuff to come out of that. Mm-hmm. I think that is at best a harsh interpretation of that because I think ultimately what this really boils down to is the idea that, yes, maybe a lot of these actors and actresses lost their jobs in the 1930s and it's awful that they were discarded by a studio system that kept on cannibalizing itself. But but they were also an essential foundation of the movies we have today. Uh, their contributions shouldn't just be disregarded because they weren't able to adapt to this new way of making movies when sound came around. Uh, everything that they did was really part of the building blocks uh, that gave us cinema what it is today. And yeah, maybe maybe Chazelle does it a little bit uh, like too flowery almost where this long montage just kind of hammers it home a little bit too cleanly. But I would also say that it kind of earns that montage because it has done a pretty good job up to that point to establish that these are people who are very passionate about their craft uh it took a lot of work to become an actor or an actress in the silent era because you had to do so much more just expressing your emotions via uh, your face and your body as opposed to spoken words and while 100 years later we might be making movies very differently uh, their contributions were still essential. And I think there's a big realization during that final moment uh, that he tries to hammer home, especially to people who may not be as familiar with the 1920s and 1930s uh, as they are now, hopefully, after they've watched the movie. Yeah, I guess there's like multiple different takes on the scene and one being like, well, yeah, the, like you said, these people, like they kind of like, they paved the way for movies to be the great thing they are today. So I've heard some people say like, well, this is him like kind of reflecting on like, look at this montage, look how great movies are. Maybe this, maybe that maybe we're not in, maybe we're not in such a great place anymore that even allows for these kind of movies. Or maybe it's just like a more even genuine reaction where it's like, Hey, movies are great. I just want to kind of celebrate with you guys one more time at, at the end of this three hour journey I've taken you on. Um, regardless of which of those things it is, I think like, I don't even know if you need the montage for you to like for him to have that, you know, for him to have that message. Like you, you could just end on something from singing in the rain. If you already have the rights to play singing in the rain to the extent that he does there again, I still respect the big swing he took in doing all that. Uh, it's just, I, I, I can also hear if someone's like, I can, I would, I, I can, I can understand someone like giving the criticism, which again I, is another thing I've seen where they're just like, seems like you just didn't trust your audience, to like pick up whatever you're trying to say about your movie. If you need to like hit them over the head with this thing. So I, yeah, there, there's plenty of ways to look at it. And it's like, if, if it's like when your movie's already that long then whatever, but at the, but like, I, I, I can only be like so negative about it. The more I've thought about it, because it's like, man, like you, you, you kind of started the podcast off by saying it. It's like, I mean, who knows? I, I'm very curious to know what his next movie is going to be. Because like oh, yeah. we we'll get to make another movie, it's just never oh, definitely yeah, not going to get one. Definitely not going to get to make one with this kind of budget. And so it's like you just like you threw everything he had at the screen, and who knows? I mean, yeah, I'm sure he thought this movie would make money when he made it. I don't know, like who knows when when they started filming? I because it's because you know Avatar: Way of Water got released like pushed back. Who knows how many different times? So who knows if they how long they knew they were going to release it right at the same time Avatar got released? That that couldn't have helped. Um, yeah. there was also like a, there was also like uh just massive, massive, um, you know, uh, 
cold fronts all over the country during the last week of December when this would have been making most of its money, but that didn't stop Avatar from making a bunch of money. Uh, but you know, maybe it's like people are like, I can only afford to like go, out, go outside once when it's this cold. I don't know. Um, yeah. at the end of the day, I don't know what would have had to have taken for this movie to make a lot of money. I'm sure he thought it was going to when it made it obviously not going to happen. So it's like, what, what is someone like him that like, you know, is a couple of movies removed from like a big hit and then now is a big flop. Like what does their next one look like? I don't know. But the fact is he left it all out on the floor. He threw everything he could into it. He got it as long of a run time as I'm sure he could get out of it. And he got it done. So it's like, look, I, 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 I kind of disrespect you, him stuffing everything he could in there and just doing it. And even if I don't know if that last choice worked, it's like, man, you got to make your movie. And how many other people are really getting to make movies like on this level, especially people that are that young, you know, like how many people are really getting to do stuff that's like, you know, this indulgent, uh, you know, it's like Quentin Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, and like who else really? So yeah. it, outside of like, outside of like, right. I wouldn't even call Marvel movies indulgent because the directors aren't really getting to indulge themselves. They're doing what Marvel calls for them to do, even if they're getting big budgets. Like there's really like, you know, no one that's really getting to like, you know, throw everything at a screen like this, especially someone that's like closer and closer to our age than our parents' age, you know? So I, I, I think, I think, I think it's really cool. I'm glad he did it. And I'm curious to see what the, what the cost to him is at the end of the day. Uh, but like, I, I don't know. Like I, it's like, that, 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 that as I was watching that ending now, I'm like, ah, this is going on a little long. That was kind of my thought, even though it's like, it's kind of interesting. He made this choice. That was my reaction. I don't know if I had the emotional catharsis. He was probably hoping to elicit from the audience, but you know, whatever. That didn't mean I thought it was like, this is offensively bad. I did not have that reaction at any point in the movie. I just think like, and we're kind of, I think we're in agreement on this. It's like, Hey, good, good experience. But like in any three hour something, how many three hour movies are perfect? You know what I mean? Uh, so you're going to be able to like nitpick stuff here and there. And I think, I think we, we both have ways in which we may, maybe would have altered this thing to make it a little tighter and a little more streamlined. But like at the end of the day, glad he got to do it, you know, even if, and I, and I like La La Land like a lot less than most people, I feel like most people do, but like, I'm, I'm still like really happy for him because Whiplash was my favorite movie of 2014. Um, and I, I, th I think I was probably I, I i don't honestly i don't remember how i, I probably like first man less than you but like I, I i just like i want him to keep doing whatever he wants to do as long as he can keep doing it because i think that's important you know yeah i do think the viewing experience of babylon was very similar to another movie that came out in 2022 which was elvis in the sense where i think the first two hours had so much energy and packed so much of a punch um that it was almost a little um I guess disappointing to have a last hour that was so gloomy and tragic where some of the energy just wasn't quite there anymore. You know, it's um, disappointing, Fred. It's disappointing is that I think Elvis is going to get all the Oscar nominations. This movie should have, that Babylon should be getting or something like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't count Babylon out necessarily. I'm sure it's going to score a bunch of technical nominations. It's well represented at the Golden Globes, even though, yeah, I know they're not as big anymore as they used to be, but I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised to see this pop up in some categories, but, but, but yes, I do think that if you're going to have a movie from 2022 about show business, that is just this super extravagant depiction of what it means to be an artist. Um, I do think Babylon in some of the categories, yeah, should probably uh, get dips ahead of Elvis. I would agree with that. 
don't know, you've talked me into liking the movie more than I thought I did. I, again, I, I came in being like, I don't know if I have a strong take. And now, now and I think part of it might have been watching Singing the Rain might maybe help me give it a different, a different kind of appreciation for it than I had coming out of it. But like, I did struggle with it a little bit, uh, figuring out how I felt about it because it was it just it just overwhelmed me at first. Um, and Fred, we, we, we kind of skipped over things here and there. But is, before we finish up on this one, was there anything you want to touch on that especially specifically that we didn't yet? Because, again, we, we don't want to do a podcast that's quite as long as the movie because we got another movie to talk about. Just two very minor things. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed seeing Spike Jones as a German movie director. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, got a good laugh out of that, especially because there were a lot as, of as, as a German, you're not offended that part didn't go to a German. Uh, I mean, that would have been interesting, <laughs> I'm sure, because there are a lot of candidates that could have played it. But I just like that he was there because there were a lot of German filmmakers that uh, were very successful in Hollywood around that mm -hmm. time. Uh, F.W. Murnau, uh, Fritz Lang, people who emigrated from Germany and then uh, really uh, had a big breakthrough in Hollywood, uh, Joseph von Sternberg. Uh, and it was also nice to see Eric Roberts in a prestige picture again, because he does a lot of uh, just garbage these days that nobody ever watches. Uh, he plays Nelly's father in this movie. Kind of nice to see him be uh, in a picture again that uh, people are actually going to see, or maybe not actually, because Babylon isn't very successful, but still well, nice not, to see him in something You're like also this. not a huge, you're, you, you're not a huge TV comedy guy. Uh, but there, he, he has a really good arc on the Righteous Gemstones, uh, most recent season. So, it was oh, right, yes, I did see you got cast in that. That's awesome. Yes, glad to see so, so like, I mean, I, I, a lot of people had the same reaction to seeing him in that, uh, where it's like, oh, cool, like, he actually like had a really good performance and got the and he had a lot of scenes opposite John Goodman where he like holds his own in the Righteous Gemstones. So, it's like kind of cool to like see him, like, yeah, like I can do this even if I'm doing like a lot of movies that you're never gonna ever hear of <laughs> at the same time. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, try, I don't know if I had any other like final thoughts on, uh, Babylon myself that I, I that I, let me, well, let me, let me, let me check my notes one more time. But like, I, I didn't, not really, I guess I, um, well, we, we talked about the Gene Smart scene too. And like, we skipped over the Brad Pitt, uh, Lady Faith or the Jack Lady Faith scene where I think like hearing, I think part of what like kind of, I, I, he might've killed himself anyway, but I think part of what I think she tells him in that movie, she's about to go overseas to work. Which is, I think it's like another sign of the times to him. And is this kind of like further kind of like, you know, upsets him, but it was just like, um, it just, it just, I just think impressive acting from, uh, from Brad Pitt, uh, like very cool to like, see him, you know, remind everyone like, Hey, I'm like, I, I can really act. I'm, uh, I'm more than just a pretty face. I don't I mean, I, cause I mean, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people like really liked what he did in once upon a time in Hollywood is cause it was like charming and he looked handsome and he did an incredible job at that. Uh, but like, I wasn't necessarily asked to act flex certain kind of dramatic acting muscles. Like he honestly, maybe didn't add Astro, which is just much more underseen, uh, which actually though, I think made more money than a lot more money than Babylon's going to make, yeah. even if it got a lot less attention in retrospect, but like, I don't know. I just, it was, it was really good by him. And, uh, and I, and I will say, I didn't like Diego Calva. I didn't really have a lot of thoughts on him, but I think he did what was asked of him. Well, it's just, I mean, I think, you know, that character is more reacting to what's going on around him for a lot of the movie. So there's just not as many. And it's like, tough when you share the screen with some of the biggest stars in Hollywood for three who hours. Who are giving big performances, more. you know? Um, like, we, we didn't even talk about the scene with, like, Margot Robbie and, Robbie and the Snake. But, like, what is there to say? Like, she, she was very committed, you know? All right. Well, that, that's Babylon. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. And we're going to be right back and talk about Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. <laughs> All right, so Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, is writer-director Ryan Johnson's follow-up to 2019's Knives Out, which was a big smash hit. 
then he uh, cashed a big ass check from Netflix to agree to do the next two movies with them. Luckily, Fred and I, uh, well, or luckily for Fred and I, uh, he as part of his deal with Netflix, he got to get somewhat of a limited theatrical release. So Fred and I saw Glass Onion during its one week run back in uh, the end of November, beginning of December. Uh, but then, uh, but then it went away for a bit, but I, I kind of held off on doing it till doing the podcast till everyone had seen it on Netflix. So that is why we're doing this now. Uh, Glass Onion, uh, a Knives Out mystery, uh, follows the predefinite detective in the world. <laughs> uh, Benoit Blanc played by Daniel Craig. He is, it is set in early 2020 or March or May, 2020, May 2020. Yep. Yeah. May, May, 2020 when we are, uh, Right in the throes of uh, isolation and quarantining from COVID-19, uh, Benoit Blanc is in his bathtub on a Zoom with just uh, the most uh, cr- crazy uh, group of friends you've ever seen, including Angela Lansbury, Stephen Sondheim, RIP to both of them. That tells you uh, when this movie filmed, because neither, neither of them are with us anymore. Also had uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Natasha Lyonne, because just your average you know, uh, Zoom hangout there. Uh, he's, he, then all of a sudden he gets a knock on his door, Gets a gets a big box. Who um, uh, that? Or I guess actually, actually I think I, the movie jumps to him after we've already met the other characters, uh, who who are also uh, who are also you know early in the early in COVID doing their own things and and just a really uh, a, a really great montage. Not even more so for the box for me. I could honestly give or take that, but they get this puzzle box that has all these different things in it, and that's how they have to decide you know or have to figure out what it means because they know it's from their their friend Miles Braun, who uh, is a is a billionaire who runs a large tech company played by Ed. Norton uh we actually don't know we don't we actually don't find we actually don't meet him till they actually get to where he's invited them to but uh these these friends that he's invited he's sent these boxes to they include uh Claire DeBella governor of Connecticut played by Catherine Hahn Lionel Toussaint the head scientist for Miles Company played by Leslie Odom Jr uh we have Duke Cody a video game streamer men's right activist uh played by Dave Batista and uh and Kate Hudson plays Birdie J just a um a former supermodel turned influencer fashion designer person uh her assistant's name is peg she's played by jessica henwick who ends up going on the trip with her duke's girlfriend is named whiskey she's played by madeline klein uh but they they all get these same boxes that uh uh that benoit blanc ends up getting and it's like hey why why did benoit blanc get a box to the same island like all these other people did miles says he has him there just for a murder mystery party and which benoit blanc hilariously solves in like five seconds and then the real mystery of why is benoit blanc there that becomes the mystery and then it also turns into something else because this thing this whole movie is like you know it's like a it has layers like an onion Fred, I guess I guess coming into this, I don't know. I don't know if you happened to rewatch the original Knives Out um, recently prior to seeing this one. I, I actually had not when I saw it for the first time, so I guess I, I wasn't going back and comparing them a, b- a bunch throughout. So I, I think that that would kind of color your opinions a little bit if you're watching this right after watching Knives Out. And so, because because my initial opinion after seeing Glass Onion was like, oh man, I really enjoyed that. I don't know if I liked it as much as I like Knives Out or not because I haven't watched Knives Out in a while. I feel like I remember laughing more at Knives Out. So I'm wondering, like, because uh, I can't, I'm I'm guessing you probably did like the original Knives Out. So I'm wondering, like, what kind of expectations you came into this with, and were you able to like kind of like appreciate it on its own merits, or were you like, you know, were you comparing them a bunch, or do you think this like kind of holds up on its own, or do you think it was a step back? So. I don't know if you read this, but Ryan Johnson was apparently super opposed to the idea of calling this glass onion and knives out mystery. I think um, I heard that. I might have heard that in his interview with Mark Maron, actually. But yeah. Yeah, which, which I mean sounds a little silly on the surface, but I kind of get why he didn't really 
uh, want to see that because of course, when you have it explicitly in the title, people are immediately invited to make comparisons. And I think he just mm -hmm. wanted this to stand on its own two feet, um, even though you have the same main character. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there is anything super novel about the idea of making a bunch of sequels to a whodunit. I mean, Agatha Christie wrote literally dozens of Poirot novels. Um, same with Miss Marple or Sherlock Holmes short stories uh, from Arthur Conan Doyle. So there's clearly a lot of meat still on the bone. And I appreciated that Ryan Johnson didn't necessarily do a rehash of the first movie here in a similar location with similar characters, but decided to go for something totally different where um, clearly the plot and some of the constructs are more complex and more ambitious uh, while simultaneously sacrificing the, I think, efficiency of the original Knives Out, which really didn't have a ton of superfluous stuff surrounding it, except for that core dynamic within the family and how much they all really despised each other. And I think there is just a lot more to the relationships here. And I think that makes it for a more huh. complex movie. Um, but I do think that I still appreciated the simplicity of the original a little more. Well, I'm glad I asked you that question that, that elicited that answer from you because I, I kind of might disagree a little bit on as far as the relationships between the characters and that like, I, I think a fair criticism almost is like, do you really buy that these people would have been friends? You know? Um, so it's like, I, I, I guess I have trouble wrapping my head around that a little bit. Whereas like I kind of, the family setting kind of like jumps over that kind of like th that kind of hurdle, you know? Uh, it's like, they're all just so they're all, I, I, I did it. It wasn't that much of a hang up for me. Cause like I, I enjoyed all those performers in isolation, but I'm like, I don't know if I really found their, if I really bought their relationships and that these people would actually like really have been that close. You mean in glass onion now, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard because they initially became friends like quite a long time ago when none of them were sure. successful yet. And I mean, I'm thinking back to people I was friends with 10 years ago. Um, and some of them are no longer part of my life because they just went into a totally different direction in terms of their careers or just their locations. But I think if you develop a certain codependency on each other for your success, which is what really happened there, where Miles Braun became such a big driver mm -hmm. of um, both their professional success and their wealth, that I think you can kind of explain that away, that even if they're not necessarily close friends, uh, mm -hmm. they still have to show up when he calls because they need him for things. Uh, sure. To keep their success going, and I bought that just enough to think that they would show up to this island, even if they didn't necessarily like this guy all that much. Well, no, I, I, there, I guess of, I... there were a lot of hints, like even before there are all these reveals, uh, that these guys don't necessarily like each other; that they're mm -hmm. just putting on a, a facade because they have to be around each other anyway, so they might as well. Uh, try to make the best of it. But I don't think any of these people would have necessarily been friends in real life if they didn't have that mutual past together that tied them together in this unfortunate way. Right. I guess they just seem, they, I mean, I guess in sure money and success will turn you into like a different kind of person. They'd say that the, they say that the um, Duke, Duke character is just like a video game nerd, even if he like, you know, looks like Dave Batista. Uh, and uh, so it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that guy, it's more understandable. He'd be friends with someone like whatever the Catherine Hahn character was at that point where it's like, she would probably be in real life. That person would be afraid to be seen in public with him, you know, but I guess you're going, you're going to a private Island. You don't necessarily have to worry about that, I suppose. And I, I but I did buy that all these, I did buy the ultimate, you know, idea that these people are all just going to be drawn to the guy with money. 
you know, and that they that they that they'd want to keep feeding off the the proverbial teat or whatever or, or how however that you want to make that expression go. Uh, I I, to, I I did buy that. It was just like I didn't to, to, I, I just didn't totally like I I didn't totally necessarily get the interactions there as much as I did in the, the original. And like I but like you know that that but like. I still like really, really enjoy glass onion. It, it, that was just like one thing. If I had to say like, what, what, are, if I, there were two things I had to say, I like more about the first one, it'd be that. And also like, I think I did laugh more at the first one. Cause I went back and watched it. And like, I, I, I think I laughed more just watching it on the iPad when I was like, I was watching it on the iPad while I was like riding the recumbent bike at my grandpa's place in Philadelphia by myself. I, I laughed more of, of certain jokes there than I did the first time I saw glass onion. And I, this, it, that was probably my third time watching knives out. Like, I don't know. I mean, and, and maybe that, that, that's and obviously like, laughing is very and comedy is very subjective and all that. And like, you know, but like, I guess for whatever reason, like the, the, the like in, in the first times out, like the jokes about them, like, you know, um, the, the, the running gags they have there just like made me laugh more like them. All, all the family members keep telling Marta like, oh, I, I wanted to invite you to the family, the funeral, but I, I got overruled or they, 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 they keep they, they keep forgetting what country he's from. And I, I just enjoyed that kind of skewering of the rich people. Like I found that funnier, even if I really appreciated some of the stuff in Glass Sunny that I thought was really kind of sharp. Cause like, I mean, I, mean, I think plenty of people have had their gripes about pandemic content and how it's done. And I really liked how he addressed the pandemic here. It's like, yeah, he did, all of a sudden you're just like, you know, uh, first you see like a mask, it kind of lets you know where you are. But then he just like jumps to a party where like no one's wearing masks and it's May, 2020. Uh, right after a zoom out from like the CNN graphic, we're showing like how many people were just were dead yeah. that like, we also got so accustomed to seeing in 2020 zooms out to a party of a ton of maskless people not giving a shit. And then like, I, and then even like the whole, like, I mean, I, I, I don't really have a take on like why Ethan Hawke did that role, but like, I mean, there's so many cameos, who knows what, I guess you just see Ethan Hawke and you just assume he's going to be in more of it. Cause to that point, like all the other famous people were kind of playing themselves for the most part that weren't, that were making cameos. Um, but like the idea that like a rich person could just like, well, then you, then you see Kate Hudson wearing the mask, which I did, th- I think was kind of funny that has net, it's like a net. And then, and then like the idea that they, this rich guy just had a cure for COVID that like no one knew about, like, I kind of got a laugh out of that too. Uh, and that these rich people just really aren't thinking about it that much. He's letting you know where it is, but I thought it was really interesting commentary on like how the rich, like it, their lives might not have changed that much. I mean, I, I remember, oh. um, do you, do you, did you watch, um, do, do you watch succession? Yes. So I remember Jesse Armstrong saying something about how, like, yeah, you know, like we, we decided not to like set it in the COVID world. Cause we just like, didn't think that like it really changed the lives for the people that were this level of rich that much. And I'm like, that's probably like the smart call. So you don't have to like have that big hurdle in your show. It's like, yeah, they'd probably be doing all the same stuff anyway. And it's like, this is like a different, different kind of funnier way of like conveying that while actually setting it in the, in, in the COVID world, you know? And I appreciate that scene with Ethan Hawke in a couple of different ways. First, because obviously you need to address uh, why none of them are going to wear masks on the island. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're obviously in a tight space together and they're interacting. So obviously that's a breeding ground for everybody to catch the uh, catch COVID. But now, of course, oh. you have a very simple way to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, it's also a nice red herring because you think they're getting something sprayed into their throat. So maybe that's going to come into play again mm. later, like when somebody, about that. May, when somebody may or may not be choking to death at some point in the movie. And as it turns out, it really wasn't anything that was super important. It was just a nice way to uh, get everybody on that island without their masks and to explain mm-hmm. why they would have felt safe around each other. Um, and, and for the reason you already mentioned, right? He's the super rich guy. He has a cure developed already. But of course, he's not willing to make it available to the public. So those rich assholes just get to spend... Uh, 
sometime on this super nice island in Greece while all of us poor people have to sit at home and we don't really get to do anything with our lives in the meantime. Well, yeah, well, yeah, and I, well, that's the thing, like, though, I feel like if, if a guy, like, ha- had a cure, like, you, you just want to sell and make a lot of money, too, at the same time. Like, you have a private island. You can escape all of us normal people if you want to. But uh, regardless, it's like he's so, he's so self-obsessed and so rich already. He, it's, it's not really that urgent of an issue for him to, like, need to do that anyway. Um, but uh, but I, I guess the other big thing about here, and, and just so we don't, we're not spending the whole time, like, comparing the two movies, but, like, the big difference is, like, how he tells his mystery you know yeah. and i respect that he i respect that he like found such a different way to do it this is like my big overall takeaway before we can talk about other specific plot points to the extent we want to but like you know we and i and it's interesting that i happen to invite you for this this podcast uh because like we we, we did do death on the nile earlier this year mm-hmm. or shit no we're in 2023 we did it last year and my yeah. big thing with that is that like you know they're not totally dissimilar and like ryan johnson's talked a lot about how he's inspired by the agatha christie stuff and he Obviously. You know, yeah, and like, and like, it's not totally somewhere for it's like how you you, you get to a point, and it, it well, I actually I take it take it back because like those are like more like you know Perot explains at the end what happens or whatever, but you know here it's like you do have some expo- ex- expository scenes divvied up a little differently as far as like what what point in the movie that happens, but regardless, you still have the same idea of like someone kind of. Co- co- explains the detective at the end kind of fills in the blanks for you as to what happened and we're not doing a spoiler section for this one it's on netflix everyone can see it he explains it all, all, all the little things that like oh that he picked up on at the end that kind of like oh you either didn't you either didn't clock that when you saw it in the movie or this thing kind of happened off screen or whatever but you know i think one thing that like i kind of respected or i i, I found myself impressed with as i watched it was like i actually was like excited to go back and watch and like see how all that stuff tracked and certain times when there's like a big reveal at the end of a movie and in this movie like spends like half the movie like kind of like like recontextualizing stuff for you as opposed to just like having the guy like listed off at the end or something like i guess like kind of like pro does in death on the nile but like i don't know i just found myself like i, I like the way it was all the breadcrumbs were laid throughout in such a way where i was excited to go back and see it and maybe it's part of the maybe part of it is just that like you know it it not only like recontextualizes what you're looking for but also like the the actions of like two of the, two of the primary characters such that like, it's really interesting to go back and like watch what Daniel Craig is doing to that point in the movie and what, you know, Monet is doing that first half of the movie with that information. Whereas maybe you don't always have that when, it, when that new information changes characters motives for so much of the movie, as opposed to just like what you're trying to pick up on, maybe that's something different, but like if, if the killer is involved in the story, that's always going to be the case. I don't know. I just think he did, like, did it really well. And like, it was funny. I was on a business trip, uh, in, in, in about, a, about a little more than a month ago. And like, I was just, it, it was a public thing. So I was in Lakeland and I was just in a, in a, in a bar, like in a brewery. And like, there was these two other guys having a conversation, a couple, a couple chairs down for me. For some reason they were talking about Shutter Island. And I was mm-hmm. like, and, and, and like a couple of them, like really didn't like it. And, and I, I haven't seen Shutter Island in a while. But like the, the guy has like, the, the, they look over at me, not even knowing how big of a movie fan, fan I am. And they're like, you know, like, like, what do you think about Shutter Island, man? And I was just like, hey, I think they're maybe they're talking about the twist or something like that. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm like, and I, I was honest with them. I was like, look, I, I am a big movie fan, but I haven't seen that one in a while. But like the fact that like it has that twist at the end and I've never really felt compelled to go back and watch the whole thing. That might say a little something about the quality of the movie. I, I don't think it's considered one of Scorsese's better ones, even if it's totally watchable. And I, I kind of just very, came away from this very impressed, even after my rewatch of Glass Onion being like, the fact that like, you know, you can like have all this information and then still be excited to go back and watch it. I think that just says something about what he did. I'm wondering what, what about the structure of the story of this uh, really kind of like uh, impressed you? 
So I'm a, I'm of two minds about it. On one yeah. hand, or didn't I, impress I you? I don't know. Well, so like I said, so I, I I'm I'm kind of split on it because on one hand, I do think it's a very interesting way to tell that story, um, to just basically pivot in a completely different direction at the halfway point and to just recontextualize what we saw before, as opposed to kind of taking it to the next level. Because usually, what would happen now in most murder mysteries is you have the first victim. Now Blong is going to start investigating and the bodies are going to keep piling up. And that's what I would have expected to happen here as well, because that's what Agatha Christie usually did. You have a bunch of people on an island. They were invited by an eccentric billionaire. Uh, they kind of have some connection to each other, but they all have very different personalities and agendas. Um, so obviously there has to be somebody on the island who has a bone to pick with all of them and they're all going to die, or at least a lot of them are. And instead, that's not what happens here at all. Instead, we just go way back in time, well, way back in time, like significantly before them arriving on the island, and all of a sudden everything is presented in a different light. I will say my problem with that is, is I think that is almost, a, there's a little bit of cheating in that almost in the sense that, of course, when you're making a movie, you can edit scenes a certain way where you would remove vital information. And then when you present that scene again later, when you show that you cut out some lines and that you weren't privy to some of that information beforehand, you can feel almost a little bit too tricked, if that makes sense. I did appreciate some of the stuff where you thought you saw something happen, but that wasn't actually what happened. And when I saw Glass Onion the second time, I did appreciate how I picked up on some of those things. Like the thing with the, like the thing with the drink glass, like that one. Because when That's I went back and watched, it, it was like that 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 one was like I guess is what you're saying was probably one that was done well. Because if you go back and watch it the first time, you do yes. see it handed. You do see him handed to him. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and same thing with uh, Dave Bautista mentioning the pineapple juice thing. He did say mm -hmm. that in fact. Yes, uh, when they're on the boat dock. Mm -hmm. But there were also a couple of scenes, especially with Daniel Craig and Janelle Monet interacting with each other, where I felt like. Some of this stuff was twisted a little bit too much for my taste, where I thought, yeah, of course you can trick your viewers if you just cut out entire lines of dialogue or certain interactions and then just add them back in later. Mm -hmm. uh, it, to me, that is, sure, it's clever to an extent, but I didn't think that the payoff was necessarily as compelling as it might have been. If well, yeah, so I, I struggled with that a little been, bit. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say I struggled with that a little bit too, and then like because my, or, or I was trying to understand why it didn't bother me as much here because like my thing with Death on the Nile was that I felt like they he just like says a bunch of stuff that happens off screen, and that that's how he he solved it. He solved it using a bunch of information we didn't have, and I I, I almost prefer it when it's like it's like kind of there all along, and it's like you can figure it out or you can't. And it's like not all of this stuff was here all along. Some of it was, and. Uh, and I guess maybe it's just that like enough of it was there that like I, I was kind of fine with the stuff where they kind of like, you know, cut it ended a scene a little earlier and then they fill in what happened after for you or show it from a different angle or something like that. And I guess maybe that was why it didn't bother me in the same way it did on Death on the Nile. I don't know. But that was like my big gripe with Death on the Nile, if I recall, was that like it just felt like he rattled off a bunch of things that we never even saw any of. And uh, and I, and like I, I get that he, he they use that trick a little bit here, but like when they already show you, they're capable of like doing something interesting visually with, with respect to that drink glass or verbally with respect to the, the pineapple juice thing or the, the whole Anderson Cooper's birthday thing. Like, it's like, you've already shown you have a few tricks like that up your sleeve. Like maybe rely on like maybe a few more of those and a few less of the other kind of things where it's just like, you're filling in gaps, however you feel like it. I don't know. So 
Yeah, and I think there were other things that actually impressed me even more here. For example, since we talked about Depp on the Nile a little bit already, uh, first of all, I will say in defense of uh, the original novel, Kenneth Branagh omitted some things from the movie that were in the book uh, for the sake of brevity that might have filled in some of those gaps that Poirot just seems to snatch out of thin air in the movie. Uh, that said, the problem, of course, with adapting Agatha Christie nowadays is that you are setting a movie a century ago. So, first of all, you can't have the political and social commentary that uh, the Knives Out franchise uh, really likes to indulge in, and which I think makes it really funny in a lot of ways. Unless you like and, actually like focus on fascism, like you know Amsterdam did, and then it does feel relevant, even if it's a bad movie. But yes, there are ways to there are ways around that, I guess. That is fair, but obviously, when you have something set in present day, especially during COVID, it's easier to uh, tie it directly back to things we might have mm -hmm. seen in the news and that might have been big talking points over the last few years. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing, of course, is when you have something set a century ago, they didn't really have the technology available back then that you do today. So a lot of police work was done very shoddy back in those days because uh, you just didn't have the availability to, I don't know, look at surveillance footage, for example, or there wasn't really a lot of DNA work that could be or, done. Or, uh, or, get or get Google alerts that could alert you to important plot points. Absolutely, yeah. So that I would say that makes it trickier nowadays to write a good whodunit because I think there are a lot of other aspects that you need to address now. And the easiest way, obviously, is still the same way as 100 years ago. You put them in a remote location away from everybody else. And of course, when you have somebody who wants to stage a big murder mystery, who prepares the entire island to accommodate that game that he wants to play, for example, the power going out all of a sudden, and uh, there conveniently not being as much um, like surveillance. Exactly. Uh, Cell phone usage. Yeah. That, no, absolutely. Things like that. Like if you account for that in your movie, then I think that that is pretty clever because again, there are other big writers of murder mysteries who never had to account for that. And the fact that Ryan Johnson is able to account for it pretty effectively in the 21st century, uh, that says something about the way that he uh, constructs his plots and uh, writes his scripts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 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 that, that is one thing I really hadn't even thought to give him that much credit for. Cause I mean, how many, you know, I guess like, are there really, is there really anyone else like trying to do that in a, in a, in a real modern setting in a movie format? I mean, I guess there's plenty of like mystery television shows at some point, but like, I feel like, you know, this kind of like particularly type of whodunit, like, is this, it's just not something that a lot of people do. So, I mean, it's to be able to like do it in a modern way, but like interesting way, like, you know, I guess even if I, I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, I don't know. Or even, even if I was like, I don't know why these people are friends. Like it's still, you know, uh, an understandable way to like get them all on an Island. And with respect to the, also the commentary, like, you know, uh, I, I think, I think like he was almost like ahead of himself by like writing this uh, miles character. Cause like a lot of people are like, Oh, that's just a take on Musk. But like when he wrote this movie, like Musk wasn't really that much more in the news than like, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg or anyone else like that. Like, I mean, this guy is just as much, I, 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 I doubt he was thinking that much more about Musk than he was about like other billionaires necessarily. You know, I think- I know like, Elizabeth Holmes was a big inspiration because there's even that, right, that uh, thing, yeah. image. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, exactly. Right. So it's like, I think like, um, I, I, I think it, it just like, it just happened to come out at a point where Musk had put himself in the news more. So it just kind of, that it just kind of worked out that way. But like, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the commentary on, on, on billionaires, yeah, that, that's also like, I mean, well, that, that could be timeless because you could just, it could just be a rich person anytime, but I, th I think it just kind of worked and it worked out well time-wise 
for Ryan Johnson. I, I, I did come away like pretty still impressed by like how he was able to like, you know, weave it, we weave his own commentary in there without necessarily feeling like I was getting a hit over the head, which can be very easy to do when you're dealing with like topics like billionaires or COVID, because those are things we, uh, we, t- we talk a lot about these days. Did, 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 did any of the, did, did any of the non Benoit Blanc performers really kind of stand out to you the most? I feel like Janelle Monet is the obvious one uh, to address here because mm-hmm. she's getting awards consideration and may mm-hmm. actually end up in the best supporting actress category. That would uh, be cool. I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked about it. Uh, and I do think her character, uh, well, both characters that she's playing here uh, in quotations, mm-hmm. uh, is a really interesting commentary on how the richest people often aren't necessarily the smartest, but the most ruthless. Mm. And I do think that's a bit of a rich statement to make from Ryan Johnson, considering he banged $100 million for making this movie. <laughs> that said, I do think that there is something to be said about this display of um, the person who really put in all the work, who had the original idea. Um, and the funny thing is the company that Miles runs. I mean, I know that they're developing this like super new energy, of course, but did I don't ever, think- Did they ever, ever like, explain what it does? It, well, I was going more in the re- direction. I don't think they ever fully explained what the core idea of the company even was. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure if you had paused and look at what the napkin says, you can kind of piece it together. But I don't mm-hmm. think they ever actually addressed what was it they really wanted to do with this company. I mean, now, of course, that it's been around for a long time, it's gotten into it's gone into all kinds of different directions, like most of these big companies do. I mean, Amazon, for example, does so many different things nowadays that it's kind of hard to keep track of what the company ultimately is. But the founding ideas on online retailer is still there, obviously. I'm not necessarily sure I understood what Miles Ron's company's original founding idea was. But I do think Janelle Monáe was really good at playing both of these parts because, of course, you have to really switch back and forth between this almost... Uh, but by these, this like super confident woman who was wronged by these people and who's trying to claim her the credit back that she deserved. And then on the other hand, this Alabama school teacher who's just worried about her sister and now has to play this big part of all of a sudden that she never really was prepared for. And I yeah. think just the vir- by virtue of that, Janelle Monáe is the most interesting layered performer here because you have to play this double act and she pulls it off very well. Yeah, I don't know how much you'd heard about her going into the movie, but like I was so confused when before we actually like got to the twist and right when we see her get shot because I was just like, everyone's like talking about how amazing she was in this movie. And I was like, she had the least to do. What, what when, when she gets killed, yeah. like, what are they talking about? Yeah. And and then 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 it becomes apparent why everyone was so impressed. But like, yeah, I I I really enjoyed everything that like everything she did in the movie. And like, I mean, just like it was with Daniel Craig, it was like it was it was fun to go back and like watch her in the first half of the movie, knowing what I knew, knowing what I knew after having seen the whole thing. And like, uh, she's like having to do like performance within a performance within a performance almost and at, at, at various points in this movie and that that can't be that, that can't be easy to do and uh it was cool that he trusted her to do that she hasn't done a ton of acting she's done some stuff but like there's certainly other actors with longer resumes he could have called on to do it but it's it's cool that she was able to like make that work for her and and yeah like i mean also to, also just like a reminder like you know like that that character in and of itself along with blanc but like you don't really necessarily see how learn as much about how Blanc feels about these people personally, other than like his big speech at the end about how, how, how dumb Miles is. But like, even before like you get to that point, you know, like I think she, 
I mean, well, I guess she, she, she has reason to hate them because of what they did to her sister, but it's like, it's kind of cool just to like have another normal person within that group besides Blanc that can just be like, that can just like, you know, remind us, Hey, Hey, like, let's not, let's not necessarily idolize all these rich people, you know? So. Yeah. Um, and I will say something you pointed out earlier about the original being funnier than this one. Mm-hmm. I do think, and I don't really mean this as a super harsh criticism because I still thought this one was pretty funny. Um, I just thought some of the comedic performances in the first one were better. I thought Jamie Lee Curtis and Tony Collette, for example, had some great one-liners that uh, I would say most of the characters here just don't have to that extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I give I, I give credit to Dave Bautista for still being able to find comedic layers in this tough guy persona that he usually does. And when we talk about wrestlers turned actors, I think he has a much bigger range than The Rock ever had. And I do think... Yeah, he, 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 he's number one he, he's number one john cena's number two the rock is three for me at this point yeah i would really say that deportista has a lead dramatic performance in him someday that i would really like to see him do uh because again i think he has an ability to diversify his personalities in a way that some of his peers don't necessarily have mm-hmm. and i do think that it's kind of admirable that he makes fun of that tough guy persona here as this men's right activist who keeps getting yelled at by his mother for being disrespectful in his very first scene. I did I did laugh I did actually laugh a lot of his mom like solving the puzzle from like the other side of the room. (laughs) Without even looking at it, yeah. That 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 was like that 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 honestly might have been like the part that got the biggest chuckle out of me, even if it wasn't as a full belly laugh. Um uh but uh but yeah i um i yeah i guess i don't know I, I, it's interesting like whether it's like i guess it is i get that it is more in the writing as much as i do kind of like the writing because i think any of these actors probably could have pulled off some f- the, the kind of comedy that they asked other people in the first movie i just didn't really see like a whole lot of you know it, it didn't seem like it, it necessarily went for that at any point and it, it failed it just there weren't lines like that necessarily like in the movie you know it's like it's it, it's interesting to watch and compelling on its own because uh, of these characters I, I don't i don't think um i don't think leslie odom jr's given much to do at all really um which yeah. is it's yeah, a shame he's, 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 he's a, yeah. yeah he's a, he's a talented guy i think everyone i think everyone just kind of like highlighted that it's like i mean well, yeah you're not if you're leslie odom jr you don't say no to being in the knives out movie but it's like you, you would have liked them to have uh found, found a little more meat on the bone to give him yeah i i, I don't i don't i don't know Fred. I, I it is good we talked about babylon first i don't really have a I don't, I don't know if I necessarily have a ton to add on the performances. Like, I mean, everyone's doing what they're doing. I, I'm just happy for Kid Hudson. I haven't seen her in a while. Um, you know, she's going for it. And, uh, you know. And, of I, course, like, people had that really bitter aftertaste in their mouths after that music movie that she did a couple of years ago uh, that for some reason got nominated for a bunch of Golden Globes but got just ripped to shreds by critics for a really yeah. poor take on autism. Yeah, I had forgotten she was in that until I went back and was, like, curious what she had coming up. But like just just uh, shouting her out, maybe you remember the I, the one of the other things I laughed at was I think it was wasn't even a line. It's like because I, I think these are well drawn characters, but like when it's when like her assistant's asking her like, please tell me you didn't think sweatshop was where they made yeah. sweatpants, yeah, and she just funny. like looks at him like that was funny. But it's like that's not even necessarily like relying on like her saying anything. That's just like her reactions to, to that thought. But it's like you know he he has a good grasp on these characters, and like yeah. and, and you you do you do buy that 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 character would think that you know. So I I, I appreciate. 
appreciated that. I appreciated certain moments like that, but for the most part, it wasn't even like, it was more, I, I feel like this movie just like re- relied on nothing wrong with that. If it, if it works, but like it, it derived more of its last from like kind of the sight gags and the production design, which is the other thing I want to s- shout out, which is like, you know, pretty good. Cause it's so, it's so distinct, but like also like so tacky that you would want at like a rich person, like this guy's house, you know? So. Yeah, since we were speaking about the characters, I do give credit to Whiskey, who could have very easily mm-hmm. been just a stock character. This, like, mm-hmm. I mean, just this, like, blonde young yeah. girl on the arm of uh, Dave Bautista's character. But as it turns out, she actually has, like, valid thoughts and observations um, mm-hmm. that were a little bit deeper than. But, but, but yeah, they also uh, they had the, uh, like, for a second she just looks like she's just like she's she's being unfaithful to dave batista and just be sleeping around with miles and it turns out there's even a purpose to that at the end of the day where it's like it could have just been she was just like sleeping with the billionaire just because and it's like oh no that's actually like part of a larger plan so it's interesting that like i don't think anyone would have really thought much about it if they didn't even give her that level of agency but they did yeah no absolutely um but since we are kind of on the performances do yeah. we want to spend some time on Daniel Craig? Because uh, we haven't really covered him yet. Yeah, I mean, well, if, if there is one other thing that, that's worth comparing to the first movie, it's him because, like, he's the one constant um, besides yeah. the, the the one constant in front of the camera. And, I, I mean, I, one, I think it, it, his performance is colored a little bit differently because, uh, again, like I said, we, we get this whole thing where we get to go look at his performance through a different lens in the first half. But did he do did, was he doing anything else in here that really struck you uh, as someone that would, had already seen him play this character once before. I think that was actually a really nice payoff in the second half because he intentionally dumbs himself down during the mm-hmm. first half. Uh, and that seemed very out of character. So I was kind of surprised by that. I mean, that whole thing that he does in Miles Braun's office when Miles tells him, wait, what are you doing here? I didn't actually invite you. And this whole like apologetic spiel about being super embarrassed. I'll, I'll just, just leave. I'll just leave. Uh, yeah, just like, oh, my God, like, I'm so mortified right now. Um, it just I couldn't quite see what he was getting at with that. Uh, and even his whole thing of like ruining Miles Braun's murder mystery. Initially, I was like, wait a minute, like you have more social graces than that. Like, I know for a fact that you did that intentionally. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice how some of his behavior gets explained throughout the movie, because Daniel Craig, I'm. I know we did this whole thing on the James Bond franchise of the past two years, and I'm a huge fan, obviously, of those movies. But boy, am I glad that he's done with that. <laughs> because I think that that character just didn't really lend itself super well to some of his more comedic abilities. Or that version of James Bond, there's just not as much humor in those movies, you know? So yes. it's like, yeah. It's all gr- glum and melancholy and gritty. Uh, And that's unfortunate because, of course, James Bond used to be a more humorous character who was almost a little bit of, uh, he was never really a straight up parody of spying, but there was a point during the Roger Moore era and even during the Pierce Brosnan era where this like super like gentleman guy image that he cut was at the very least meant to be tongue in cheek to an extent. And Daniel Craig just never got to play Bond that way. And I really think the Knives Out franchise is going to give him a platform to take advantage of some of his skills that have been very much underused over the past decade and a half while he was playing Bond. Um, And it's nice to see him following up the performance he gave in Knives Out with one here that allows him to dive a little deeper into that character because he's just really good at pretending that he's not the smartest person in the room, when in reality, he was really two steps ahead of everyone this entire time. Mm 
<laughs> and that's really what being a master detective is all about. And it was nice to see that get paid off in the end when you realize, aha, so he really did know way more from the start than we actually suspected. So the, 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 the deal that he and Ryan Johnson, I think he's kind of in on this deal with Ryan Johnson and Ryan Johnson's producer where they're getting a ton of money just for these next two movies. Oh, yeah. So everyone that was well reported. Everyone knows there's going to be a third, but apparently like when they were at some kind of panel, a film festival or something like that, um, he basically said that like uh, he, he wants to keep doing the movies as long as uh, for the rest of his life. And Ryan Johnson said, well, I'll keep doing them as long as he keeps taking my calls. So, I mean, you know, I, I would hope that they like, you know, that there's still really good quality control. Um, but like, you know, I, I'm in that Daniel Craig gets to like, you know, exercise any other muscle he wants to do. But like, as long as like Ryan Johnson, like, you know, has good ideas and they're having this much fun, like you might get to see him do this for longer than he did James Bond. Even if this as James Bond was like kind of dragged out because of a couple of these gaps between movies, like, you know, you might get to like see him. You, maybe he'll go back. Maybe he'll go down in history uh, known just as much for this character as Bond. That'd be interesting. You know, um, yeah, I mean, if Kenneth Bonner gets to keep make. Uh gets to keep making Poirot movies. I think Ryan Johnson, Daniel Craig should be able to keep making. Yeah, I was shocked movies. by that. When we recorded the Death of the Nile podcast, I don't know if they've made the announcement about the next one he was doing. Uh, but like, that, that I was like, I don't even know if Death of the Nile made that much money. Um, no, no, it didn't. <laughs> uh, so I, I was like shocked. Like, I, I didn't know to like, I don't even, I think maybe I'd heard it briefly somewhere, but then I read this variety article I was talking about about movies coming out next year. I'm like, wait, there's already going to be another one of these next year? He's cranking them out that fast? Yeah, the um, cast looks pretty good again, too. Michelle Yeoh is going to be in it. I Tina Fey? Jamie, is Jamie Dorman in it, too, maybe? I think, I think Michelle Yeoh, Jamie Dorman, Tina Fey. Those are my, I, I can't remember any of the others off the top of my head. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, if he keeps getting to do those, and sure, Ryan Johnson keeps getting to do these, though I hope he, if this does well enough, I hope he keeps getting to flex his muscles a little more and, like, allows him to stay in theaters for longer, uh, or at least or at least uh, longer than a week stint. Like, I, I literally only got to see this in theaters because I, like, on the very last showing, it was at my my theater, just based on same, my, my, same my Thanksgiving actually. travel. What? Same, actually, yeah. We yeah, it, 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 wasn't playing at the, it wasn't playing at the AMC where my family was, and it came out over Thanksgiving. So, like, I mean... It hopefully gets at least a wider release to other AMCs next time or something like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't, uh, we, we didn't talk that much about uh, Edward Norton's performance, but I think everyone's kind of like jokingly saying like, you know, I don't how much of a performance do you have to give? Cause you know, he has a little bit of a personal reputation as being a little bit of a jerk and uh, a little bit of difficult to work with or whatever. When, when making movies, I, I would imagine that he's like, uh, Ryan Johnson seems like a really nice guy. So I'd imagine Ed Norton's maybe gotten through some of his more difficult phases, but like, it's also, people don't think it's the biggest stress for him to just kind of play a jerk. Um, so, uh, or, or, or play someone that's a little conceited or whatnot. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I did kind of clock some of the um, the 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 misuse of words he had going on earlier in the uh-huh. movie, but like didn't necessarily like put it together before Benoit Blanc did. And I was like, oh, that's interesting that n- now I understand why he used that weird word earlier in the movie or that non word or that word that shouldn't have been there. Um, but like, I mean, I, I thought I thought it obviously under still I mean very good casting. And like, I mean, I think he, I, I, I appreciate his willingness to just like, you know, play someone that detestable. Did you have any other feelings about Miles Braun? I do think it's kind of interesting that Ryan Johnson usually makes the person, the killer, who seems to be the most obvious choice from the get-go. I mean, I feel like the Chris Evans character and Knives Out. I mean, of course, things take a bit of a turn when he's nice to Anna de Amas, and you think for a while he might be helping her out because he hates his family so much. But you really know that there's something up with him from the very beginning and that he has his very own reasons for wanting to uh, kill his grandfather, right? His grandfather? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and here's the, here's the same thing with Miles Braun being the super douche from the very beginning, who obviously has some kind of agenda. Uh, 
and usually when an eccentric billionaire invites a bunch of people to an island, uh, it's historically been true that they're going to be the ones uh, <laughs> committing the killings. So I, 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 but I do think it's kind of interesting how I don't think it's ever really about who did it in Ryan Johnson's murder mysteries, but how it happened. And I think he enjoys the journey way more than he does the destination ultimately, where the identity of the killer ultimately becomes secondary. And I think that's a testament to both his writing and the ability of um, his uh, actors to show up and uh, make things really entertaining on the way there. Did you have a favorite cameo in the movie? There's a lot. I mean, you already mentioned the Angela Lansbury and the Stephen Sondheim one. Um, mm which was very kind of bittersweet, obviously, because uh, they both passed away fairly recently. Again, I thought that Ethan Hawke Red Herring was fun because you would expect him to play a much bigger role, obviously, and then he didn't. Uh, but by far, I would say my uh, favorite cameo was the Serena Williams one, hmm. where they're at the gym talking to each other, and then you realize that the video behind them was really just her, like the real Serena Williams all along, and then she she's super annoyed about them not doing a fitness session with her. I thought that was a nice little nod to. Uh, yeah, one thing I didn't realize, like right before we started recording, was that the guy that plays Daryl, the guy that's just bumming around on the island at random points, uh, in in like just like hanging out with Benoit after he gets out of the after he gets out at the end, uh, that's the guy that played Trooper Wagner in Knives Out, which I did not know. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Trooper Wagner knives out the guy that's like he's Keith, like Keith Stanfield's partner, and he's just like already a fan of Benoit Blanc, and is just like so excited about everything the whole time, and he's very clean cut looking in that. So here it's just funny he gets, gets to play a beach bum looking fellow. So I enjoyed that. Um, I, I I I I I don't know. Like a lot of people were like in other podcasts I listened to about it, they were like all like, oh my god, Joseph Gordon Levitt, he was so funny, and like I didn't I, I didn't even understand like that he was just the gong. Like I didn't get that. Until, yeah. like, until after I, I don't know if we were supposed to pick up on that while watching the movie because like you can like convince yourself that's any actor but like i feel like i can hear it once i know it uh so that yeah. that, that 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 was kind of funny because like they're they're obviously like uh they're, they're obviously pretty tight and have done multiple movies together so it's like oh he found a way to work him in i think he i think he might even i think both he and daniel craig might be like uh voice of uh some of the um uh the stormtroopers in last jedi um mm -hmm. but uh or I, I, Daniel Craig, definitely. I, I feel like Joseph Gordon-Levitt popped up in some capacity in that. Um, yes. Yes, yeah. I seem to remember that as well. Yeah, I think I, Daniel I Craig was actually like in one of those Stormtrooper outfits. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh or maybe that was it. Maybe Joseph Gordon-Levitt was just a voice in that also. Whereas Daniel Craig was actually the Stormtrooper that gets like, you know, uh, controlled by Ray. Yes. Since we're on the subject, uh, I thought even funnier than the cameos uh, was the constant name dropping. I thought it was super funny that Jillian Flynn was the one who wrote the murder mystery that Blanc sol solves in five minutes. That was good. I like I, uh, I like that Blanc was like, oh, she's actually really good. It's like, oh yeah, I would I would value Benoit Blanc's uh, um, yeah. um, opinion on like what mystery writers are actually good at it. Yeah, right. Uh, especially since he seems to hate Clue so much. Um, and then of course, what was it? Jared Leto's kombucha uh, that gets a shout out here. Jeremy Renner's hot sauce. Oh yeah. Uh, by the way. Best wishes to him. Hope he recovers from his accident. Um, that was super unfortunate to read about. But I just thought it was really kind of funny and uh, it seemed like organic too. It didn't seem forced. Of course, a guy like Miles Braun would always want to highlight who he knows and who sends him presents all the time. So I thought that was a nice way to integrate well, all it's, that. it's funny you're here for this particular movie too and you're also here for Bullet Train last year. Like, I feel like we criticized Bullet Train a little bit for some of those uh, cameos maybe not necessarily thinking they did it as gracefully but like here i think they just like 
they, they put off those things like just in a, in a more seamless way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, I think it's done very, very cleverly where, uh, again, it also kind of adds to this idea that the more characters you have, the more suspects you obviously have and the more different directions you can ultimately take it in. Um, and it takes a certain amount of confidence to work with this many characters and to set up this many red herrings. And I think Johnson does it very well. And again, that's a credit to him as a writer. Yeah. Any other any other final thoughts on Knives Out or Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery before we wrap up, Fred? No, I think that pretty much covers it. Although I do say uh, it helps to see it twice if people can make the time for it, because obviously there is a certain payoff to watching it a second time and then seeing how it all really developed during the first half. Um, it is available on Netflix now. Made for some good family viewing over Christmas. That was fun. Yeah, and so, the, the other thing I'll say about rewatching it is that, like, because I, 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 it was about five weeks between my viewings, and I guess I, I, I had some thoughts when I was uh, leading up to my second viewing, and I was like, maybe there are some plot holes in here, and there, there aren't that many, really. I mean, like I said, like, I mean, you can, you can question a thing here or there if it's like as convincing as it could be, but like, there's nothing that's like he that he misses by doing this kind of misdirect where it's like that, that there's there's no real like goof or anything like that and like because i was for a second i was like oh wait wouldn't they like all know she had a wouldn't they all know she had a twin sister or something like that but then like then you kind of forget and, like he even makes the point to her like beforehand like like the news hasn't broken yet they wouldn't really have any reason to suspect it and it's like and and i and i and i guess the one thing would maybe be like you know uh well, I, I guess that is one question I did have. I, I take that back. When I watched it earlier, what is your take on uh, Miles uh, not, like, d d do you think maybe he thinks that, like, his poison didn't do the job uh, when, 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 she showed, when, when Janelle Monet shows up? Do you think he thinks that's Andy, or do you think he thinks that's the sister? Oh, oh, you mean because somebody obviously had to know that she was dead, so... Well, the, the person that would know she's dead is the person that poisoned her, which is Miles. So right, yeah. she shows up and he's obviously very stunned she's there because he thinks he's killed her. Uh, at first, he thinks he's killed her. Do you, do, do you think he ever it would also we, we, like a no. big pop point is that this guy is dumb and he wouldn't necessarily like, pick up on certain things. So what right, do you and think until he saw the whole Google time? alert on Dave Bautista's phone, he didn't know that Andy was actually dead, right? I mean, until then, it seems like he wasn't being suspicious. And then, of course, once he saw the news alert, he realized, oh, wait a minute, she's right. actually dead. So, so you think he think he... He thinks his plan failed, and maybe yes. maybe he thinks she's there to like find the find the napkin or something. And he he he. I mean, not that he keeps it that well hidden, really. Uh, but at the same time, like I guess that's his thought at that point is that, like this is really her. I didn't kill her. I just need to make sure she doesn't find the napkin. But he's also just kind of dumb. So and so like and that, that so like some stuff can be explained away that way. Again, he lays the bread comes well for him being dumb and Blanc having that like revelation. Like, I guess that, that was the other thing. I was like, well, wouldn't he know that, like, she's dead? But I guess at that point, you know, that's not really a pothole. It's just, like, it makes sense. He would assume she's not dead, and he just has to kind of act accordingly, you know? Right, because he didn't really kill her in a way that would make it, like, super obvious that she was dead. Like, he didn't shoot her in the head, for example. I mean, he placed her Right, and he got out of there before she died. Yeah. In theory, he got, the idea of killing her that way is you don't even have to watch her die. So exactly. So there's a good chance he just sped away in his car before he actually double-checked that she was dead, so... I think you can right. kind of explain that away that there was no way for him to be hundred percent sure that he'd actually succeeded. Right. So I guess that, that, that was one thing I was like thinking about. It's like, well, wouldn't like someone just like, if they were all good friends, wouldn't they know she had a twin? 
but I guess it does track, you know, it's like, uh, there's not that much time for them to like have, have, make the twin consideration once they know that what, well, like, like at any point when they think she's dead, you know what I mean? Uh, or, or, or for him to have that consideration once he sees that on the phone, you know, um, right. He has to kind of hit. You don't, right. Because if you don't know that she's dead, you don't really have any reason to suspect that that is not the person in front of you who you think. Right. Yes. It's snapping you know? action. So yeah, see, I, I even just talked myself into realizing that Ryan Johnson made it all make more sense. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have any other thoughts. I think it's, uh, I mean, there's really no excuse not to like watch it and support it. We want them to keep making more of these. You you probably be able to, you can probably nitpick anything to a certain extent. Like, you know, Fred had his criticisms, but like it's on Netflix and we want them to keep, we want Ryan Johnson to keep getting them money to do what he does. He's a good director. So, uh, support, support glass onion knives out mystery. I think we both recommend it. I think I might've been a little higher on it than Fred, but, um, uh, but I, I, but honestly, I, I still think I would probably take the first one too, but you know, it can't, you know, there's no, no shame in that. The first one was, I think one of my top five favorite movies of 2019. So, um, yeah, same with me, actually, I, I, I really do want to be clear. I still gave it four stars on Letterboxd. I still yeah. think it's a very entertaining movie. Uh, I don't know if it'll crack my top 10, uh, of the year, probably not, but the original was my third favorite movie of, uh, 2019. So again, like if you don't reach those heights during your second try, uh, that doesn't mean that it's not a good movie worth seeing. Yeah, it was my yeah, it was my fourth favorite of 2019. So uh, yeah, uh, Fred, uh, before you get out, anything else you want to recommend to the listeners? Yeah, I'll keep this fairly short because we've been talking for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite guilty pleasures of 2022 is now available for streaming on HBO Max. That is The Menu. Uh, speaking mm-hmm. of a bunch of rich characters on an island uh, dying, uh, that is certainly part of that subgenre <laughs> as well. Uh, really enjoyed uh, Ray Fine's performance in that one. Uh, really just very amusing, but also kind of dark and twisted. Uh, definitely recommend The Menu if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, another movie that I would recommend is uh, streaming on Amazon Prime. That's Argentina 1985, mm, uh, which, I I think, that. which I think you would enjoy. It's uh, one of my favorite courtroom thrillers I've seen in a while. Uh, there's a very good chance it's going to get a nomination for Best International Feature at the Oscars this year. Uh, it's about the prosecution of the Argentinian dictatorship in the 1980s once they transitioned over to a democracy because uh, the regime committed so many crimes uh, that they essentially put together uh, a tribunal kind of similar to the, the Nuremberg trials where uh, the leadership was put on trial for war crimes. I was going to ask, do these guys have any role in sheltering the Nazis that made their way to Argentina? Because maybe I... Uh, that would have been a little bit before then, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> but they, they essentially did the things that a lot of uh, South American dictatorships did, where people were just arrested for no real reason, uh, tortured, uh, were never seen again. Uh, and it's really interesting because the prosecutor in charge, he had to hire a bunch of law school students and recent law school grads uh, to help him out on the case, because basically all of the lawyers in the country were... Uh, ideologically contaminated either they worked for the dictatorship or they were so vehemently against them that nobody would really take their research seriously because they're obviously biased so they just picked a bunch of young people who didn't really have any investment in the political system over the past 10 20 years because they were really children at the time and didn't really have that ideological component to their thoughts yet um but i would highly recommend that again it's streaming on prime a good chance to pick up an oscar nomination uh, it, it got shortlisted, so uh, definitely seems to be one of the favorites in that category. Uh, and the other thing I want to point out is uh, if you're a Ryan Johnson fan and want to see more of his stuff, 
Uh, there is a show coming out in a few weeks on Peacock called Poker Face, starring uh, Natasha Lyon uh, as a woman who has supernatural abilities to tell whether somebody is lying or not. And that is going to be uh, coming out again on Peacock at the end of January. It has a really interesting guest cast, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. We just mentioned him. He's going to be in it. Uh, Adrian Brody, I believe. Uh, a whole bunch of other usual Ryan Johnson collaborators. Uh, he's writing a bunch of these episodes and directing a few of them. Um, like I said, it hasn't come out yet, so I don't know if it's going to be good. But if you're a Ryan Johnson fan, that is definitely something you want to keep an eye on. Good, good recommendation. I'll just say, I'll just, I'll just plug again because I mentioned earlier in the podcast I watched Singing in the Rain last night. It's on HBO Max. It's mm. great. I, I, I watched it um like four or five years ago, and I'd forgotten the most of the plot. I don't know why. Um, I'd really, I, if I, I, if you'd asked me what it was before I watched it last night, I would have just been like, I don't know, these people they got to make a movie, and it's a lot of great songs and stuff. And, and like, <laughs> I, I honestly just couldn't remember like it had anything to do with like the silent to uh, talky era. Like, I just couldn't. So I was glad I refreshed myself on it before you talked about Babylon. But like, I mean, and and I, and I gave it a good review, and I don't usually like musicals that much. And I was like, I gave it a good rating. I didn't really give it the most in depth review. Um, but like, it's, I mean, it's, I, so like, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it really captures that time pretty well, but it's also fun and, um, just like, you know, really great performance and really impressive technically with all the different musical set pieces they pull off. It's a, it's a really good time and yeah, everyone should take advantage of it being on, on HBO max. Um, Fred, yeah, my, you wanna... uh, my former girlfriend back in college, like yeah. talked to me for years about watching singing in the rain. Mm -hmm. And I always just put it off because I thought I didn't really like musicals. And then mm -hmm. she finally convinced me that, uh, I should watch it. So we watched it together and I immediately knew that I had been an idiot and <laughs> that I really enjoyed it and that it was a lot of fun. And then, of course, she asked me at the end, so what did you think? And I was like, yeah, that, that wasn't so bad. That was okay. Oh, and you're too, you were too young and dumb to admit that you made a, that you were being too stubborn. <laughs> yeah, no, I've listed it's one of my top four movies on Letterboxd, actually. Oh, wow. It is my favorite musical of all time. Uh, there you go. So yeah, if she ever listens to this, which I'm sure she won't, yes, she was right all along. <laughs> there we go. Um, Fred, you want to plug your Letterboxd? Uh, yes, do follow me on Letterboxd uh, under Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Uh, I've been making my way through a bunch of 2022 releases to prepare for the Oscar nominations that are coming out in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you want to hear my thoughts on some of the stuff that uh, came out fairly recently, uh, definitely give me a follow there. Um, and yeah, you can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Fred the German. Uh, I don't know. It seems like Twitter will be around for the foreseeable future, even though yeah. it didn't look that way for a while. Um, I don't really post a lot, but I retweet some things. So like I said, give me a follow there if you feel like it. There you go. As usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast email is re uh, rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Podcast Twitter is at rewindmoviepod. Send feedback, suggestions uh, that way. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, I think we're going to have an episode on After Sun with uh, our recurring guests, Ben and Arjun. And then uh, assuming our friend Josh Brown has someone to drive into the movies in light of his uh, leg injury, we will have one on Avatar Way of Water, with The Way of Water with him and Elijah. And uh, yeah, then at that point, we're just going to be, I guess. Oh, and then also Josh uh, and Josh is going to be joined probably by uh, by our uh, old friend Lissa, who hasn't been on in a little bit to talk about White Noise since they did the last Noah Baumbach movie with me, too. I still haven't watched White Noise yet because I want to do it closer to when I do that podcast. So I can't really speak to whether or not, you know, um, uh, you guys should watch it. But like if you want to. But like, you know, if you want to watch it, we're, we will be doing a podcast on it. So you got that. So. <laughs> There will also at some point be a pod on All Quiet on the Western Front coming out uh, <laughs> yeah. quite some time ago, but that has, still hasn't uh, made its way on uh, the podcast. Feed it, got short, it got shortlisted, right? I'm sure it did, right? 
Oh yeah, of course, of course. It'll get nominated in a bunch of categories. It seems actually. Oh, so I, I didn't realize it was like projected to get nominations and stuff besides international feature. So. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it oh. definitely it should get a bunch of nominations in the technical categories for sure. Uh, it's uh, quite quite a heavy hitter, apparently. Well, so yeah, Fred and Adam and I did a podcast on that a couple months ago, which I which I edited, and I think I think I even edited a couple of things out of it where I was talking about what was coming up because I maybe I I'd forgotten I was maybe going to hold it at that point. And I was like waiting for a week where it was like scheduling just didn't work out, and I didn't have an episode to put out. But now, like, I'm I, that's probably not going to happen, so I might just put it out. Like, I might the next week might be a two a two two episode week for Fred because I want to get this one out as soon as possible too. So um, maybe I'll just do that because that's also what's been like blocking my backlog on Letterboxes. I haven't I, I haven't posted a, a single thing since uh, since since the day I saw that because I. Want to like post it i post the podcast with it so i might just want to get that done with so i can like you know clear out my uh my my my, my offline letterbox reviews and actually put them online so uh everyone you have all that to look forward to thanks again to, to fred for being so generous with this time for this extra long episode thanks to everyone for uh listening and we'll see you next time